sharing huge space. Look how fast he's going. Polar opposite to the conditions he won in Lords. Rain soaked Lords. They're getting the last step down. The crowd is roaring. He is going to do it. He's going to smash the time. Downhill racer and our expert here today, Andrew Needling. How's it? How's it going, sports fans? This is Moving the Needle podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Nietling, back with another episode. Thanks so much for all the support. The message you guys have been sending in, that other series we're doing where we're answering your questions, definitely keep sending those in. Now, this is a long time coming, a great friend of mine that it's difficult to stay in touch when you're on the other side of the world. But listen to some of these accolades. He is a multiple world champion in four cross and enduro, a bronze medal in downhill worlds. Yes, this is the same rider. Then BMX at the Olympics, representing Australia. 10 elite Aussie national titles. I've trained with him. I've tried to race against him. It's the formidable Jared Grubby Grays. How are we doing? Fantastic, Needles. How about yourself? I can't complain, mate. It's, it's been such a long time coming, and I know we've you know shared some texts, and there's always that support sort of through social media, which helps us feel like we're in touch. But we really haven't been, which is, a, I guess, a shame when we uh, our careers took sort of different paths. So, um, But you've just uh, announced sort of full retirement from racing, but I don't know if I believe you. I'm sure there'll be some racing <laughs> left for you, but... It, I well, mean, how many pizzas have you had? Are you sleeping in at oh all? Oh, man, don't get me started on that. I've had all the calories. Well, you've, you, <laughs> you've earned it. I think I went on a bit of a pizza binge. It's like the one meal, I don't know, I felt quite guilty eating it in a race season, but the minute I retired, I just had this, <laughs> this thing for pizzas. Yeah. Well, let's just say it is possible to put on five kilograms in one week. Re- I discovered that this week. Is it really? Dude, I've, I've, I've like scaled it back again now the last couple of days, but it was just at a point like I was completely stuffed and I just like kept eating like, you know, it's, it was absolutely out of control. So I'm trying <laughs> to just find that balance in the middle. I, I just knew like the more sort of strict I am with things, the more I have to binge on the other side. So luckily, you know, the binging was with food, not with alcohol or anything like that. So, so we- food is definitely my... Yeah, I've got such a weak spot for, for food. So, But you think it's from kind of just being so conscious of it and, and working so hard I mean, and so restrictive? Well, yeah. I mean, I guess like I've always – and I, I need to get back to it. Like I have the last couple of days. So it's been pretty good again. But um, I just know like how crappy I felt after just seven days of just eating pure rubbish. You know, the amount of chocolate I had and pizzas and – little bit of wine thrown in as well, but not too much. But um, just a combo of everything. I just felt started feeling terrible after about a week. So, I mean, it's it's something I've always watched. At times, I've been sort of bad with my diet, but um, definitely like an off-season thing. But I'm always pretty good at getting back on track as well. So, just got to find that balance in the middle somewhere. Oh, well, they say life's all about balance. But I think it's pretty understandable that, you know, you'll let it all out and your binge and your kryptonite was was your diet, but I have a sneaky feeling within, like you say, within a week, you've got this habitual habit. Like I end up still going to the gym. I don't do like that much there, but if a few days goes by and I look at myself, I'm like, what are you doing? You know, you haven't exercised. It's this yeah, old totally. habit of, of, you know, you did it six, seven days a week for 20 odd years. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's just, I know it's something that'll always be a part of me. Like I said, you just, 
enjoy that feeling of you know being healthy and fit and active and just makes your mood improve like just I've never been cut out for the you know the couch potato life maybe for a, a week or two here or there like when you're really tired at the end of a end of a season or something and you just want to you know watch tv for a week but then I always like give me two weeks and I'm just ready to ride my bike again so and I think that'll uh, always just be a part of it and have you I mean, it's early days, right? So the news has kind of just been released. You've been sitting on it a bit. I, I want to understand the thought process, but have you had time to reflect on on the the career you had in? Well, I'd say mountain biking, but we have to include BMX, road, you know, XE, all, all those things. Have you had time to just sit back and go, "I'm pretty satisfied," or that that was a good go? Well, I think that that's kind of like the main part of it all. Really, is like I just. I didn't feel like I've got anything to prove anymore. Like coming back from cancer in 2019, like I was like super ready for the 2020 season, felt really fast and like was fit and strong and felt hundred percent again. But then obviously coronavirus, you know, popped up and that season didn't really happen at all. So, and ever since then, I just kind of never got that real drive back for enduro, especially anyway, you know, just once I'd sort of done that prep again, then I just sort of didn't feel like I just, hadn't didn't have the motivation for last year again like tried to but we decided to take you know a bit of a different approach approach with my racing last year and try some different things like the e-bike races and that sort of stuff but that you know that just wasn't for me 100% like I just wasn't in it in any way so um but yeah I guess like just that feeling of just being satisfied like it always hurt you know hear about riders like you know being sad when they retire and whatever and I can honestly say there's not one bit of that it's just it's honestly it feels like a big relief at the moment like I think the biggest thing for me was like you know in years past when you see what people are up to in the off season to get you like fired up get those sort of competitive thoughts going again and that'd make you train harder and you know get on top of your game again but I guess probably the last couple years like whenever I see that, like, it's just like, Oh, I don't want to go through that again. You know, like I just felt was like, it's like my, my tokens of run out sort of thing of like, really, I mean, I love the physical aspect, which is why, you know, my background was with cross country. So I've just loved doing a bit of that at home here and, you know, racing all the domestic stuff. But, um, so that was a big goal was to win the XE national title last weekend. And unfortunately that didn't go to plan with me deciding to go off the track and over the bars at the end of lap one. So, but then I won the short track the next day. So, but anyway, just the whole the whole process of training and getting better, like that's just what I absolutely am addicted to. Like just just the hard work and just you know going to bed at eight o'clock at night, waking up at four o'clock in the morning, and just getting out there doing the training and seeing the progression. Like I just absolutely love that. So, just looking to you know, I guess continue that on some way, whether it be a scaled down version or just, you know, anything to keep moving forward in life. I think that's what makes me the happiest. So, I was going to ask you about that because, I mean, you were always just crazily motivated and uh, the training, it did seem to come easier. And, and you've mentioned something. You think it was some some form of a, a addiction, distraction. I mean, you were just, you wouldn't stop. I mean, it, it, it definitely elevated me being around you. I'm sure your teammates and, and all that. Did that, was that natural? Is that just, from a young young age in Australia? Oh, I think that there's definitely an aspect of like, I mean, I definitely had times when I'd come home at the end of the season and, you know, people wouldn't see you for, 
you know, months, you know, go because it's such a off season, on season, so to speak, sort of sport, you know, summer sport. So go home in September, October, whatever it was, and then I'd pretty much just fall off the face of the earth for a couple of months, and I definitely wouldn't be doing anything in the way of like like sometimes I would it'd just be like if I felt like it just just ride for the enjoyment of it or you know go to the gym or whatever to just keep some sort of normality but um I guess it's something that's just always been a part of me just always had that competitive drive and just always wanting to stay on top of things and like I've, I've said to a bunch of people like over the years that pretty much I don't enter a race unless I feel ready to compete you know like I don't see the point in just rocking up to race when you know you're not you know in any sort of form or anything like that I don't understand why people do that so just knowing that like setting little goals like I'm going to start my season here at this race and can guarantee it always be somewhat ready for that race maybe not peak but you know like working towards that so it was just like a process I've always really enjoyed so but I've definitely had my downtime in off season that sort of deal as well so it's not like you just keep out of 24 7 365 so always a little bit of downtime. You've got to let the body adjust and relax a bit too. So, Yeah, I think with uh, coming from Australia and me in South Africa, and I see it with Greg, I think that helps with the longevity to actually put the bike away and and do other things and and sort of maybe not feel guilty, but get to the point like, okay, I need to start working. I'm, I, I want to start working uh, versus like, yeah. okay, it's a grind. Because if you grind year in, year out, I don't think you'll get the longevity that you did. And uh, what yep. about the challenges coming from Australia? So, I mean, I bumped into, I think it was second or third year over, I guess, in 03, but you'd come over before that as far as I know. What, like, what was it like coming from Australia or from quite a small town that you're from and then on to sort of the world stage? And you had some really raw speed in downhill. I mean, I remember seeing some videos and some crashes, one being Caprun. <laughs> I think it was that big one you had at Caprun. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> That's still one of my best ones to this day. Through the speed trap, there's only three of us that went over 70k an hour through the speed trap, and I crashed about 10 meters after the speed trap. So you do the math. I think it was like 71 point something k an hour. I remember my speed trap speed was. So it ended up in quite a few broken bones and pretty much an entire off season spent healing. Then so, but I mean, just coming from Australia, I think one thing that Australians have always had like is because especially years ago when you know you're young and you don't have much money like there was a definite strong feeling of I'm traveling halfway around the world to do this so I'm gonna make absolutely the best I can of this opportunity so I was very lucky with like opportunities I had you know John O'Taylor helping me out getting sort of linked up with Orange which got me linked up with Sean Heimdall and on the Mad Cats team so that was my first big start and um so that's how that all started. But yeah, just that feeling of I'm traveling halfway around the world. You know, our family's never really had much money. So scraped together enough money to get a, an airfare. And I was lucky enough to get, you know, some expenses paid apart from that race entries and, and had a place to stay and transport around. So, but just knew I just needed to make the most of that opportunity to sort of, you know, live my dream, so to speak. So I see that's probably one criticism I have of certain riders you know, growing growing up and coming through the ranks now is seems like they all want things handed to them a bit more and they've never had to, like, sleep on floors and eat two-minute noodles and all that sort of stuff. Like, you try to eat as best you can, obviously, but the funds just didn't allow us to just splurge on whatever we needed back in the day. So 
there was yeah just that definite strong aspect of just got to make this happen you know like make it work so yeah i remember those days i mean i had not a penny to my name either and uh, the old uh, water cup refill trick in mcdonald's or whatever it is <laughs> we would have loved to eat better but it just wasn't possible we weren't going to get through the season i mean i routed some tiles in between to get a few more dollars and and i remember like and sean heimdale credit to him was making it work as well you know it's not like he had the budget it's he yeah totally he yeah, didn't no. have budget he was still he, working a full-time job yeah and he had all this talent that he just couldn't say no to it you bryn rennie and sam all on one team you just think about that the talent there the rawness and i mean you guys were sleeping on mattresses on floors i mean that's just the way everyone had to make it work. Yeah, we had our uh, we had our tile situation. Like we each got a, a certain amount of allocated tile space for our sleeping arrangements, but it literally was sleeping on the floor, like maybe with a rug underneath us or something for a bit of padding over the tiles or on the carpet. Or can't remember what the flooring situation was like. But the thing is, as well, like you actually do get used to it. Like give it a few nights, and you can sleep just fine on a floor. So. That honestly never even bothered me one little bit. I slept worse on the couch because it was all lumpy. And so, yeah, you, you make it work, you know, that you have to. So, no, you do, don't you? I think, remember when we went up to Big Bear, I think like going up to Big Bear was great because we had accommodation. <laughs> so we had exactly, yeah, you, yeah. And you made full use of your private room. <laughs> and and the, it's those small things that, that you appreciate, like just not having another Aussie next to you on the tiles. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, there was some some good good nights. And it was actually, it was really nice when we went to a race. And if you got a bed, that was just like instantly like a confidence booster because you're like, oh, I'm going to get this amazing sleep. And not that I think it actually did make a difference, but it just made you feel because, you know, I slept good. I remember that season actually when Bryn and myself stayed with oh, – sorry, the season before in 2002 – Brent and myself stayed with Jason Cotting in Colorado and that was sort of my first, I guess, time in Colorado and got to meet some of the Yeti guys then and, and all that sort of thing. And and Rennie was still on Yeti at the time. That was his last year on Yeti before the team, you know, I guess briefly stopped existing as it previously had due to, you know, sponsors pulling out and that sort of stuff. But um Yeah, it was just um like we were we were going to bed at Geez, I don't know, like midnight and sleeping until midday or one o'clock. It was literally like sleep half the day, get up, get some food and just go ride all afternoon until it was dark again and then eat more food, go to bed and just repeat. That's all we did. And what sort of riding were you doing? Because I remember the year after it, so we were on, we had like dirt jump bikes and we put the seats up and we, it, we weren't, there wasn't as much structure, but you just rode your bike 24 seven. Yeah, I think that was it. Like we just we um we did a lot of dirt jumping, which isn't you know super duper physical. But when you're out there doing it for six hours, and you know you're sprinting at a, at a jump to get over it, sort of thing. And I just remember like it was so hot there too. We were constantly like sweating. Just every every gas station we pulled into was like get a not even a gallon of water, get a couple of gallons of water each, and then just like keep drinking that. So. Definitely pretty physical, but there's a, I mean, street riding was was big with us back then, and street riding, dirt jumping, and downhill runs. When we could get some shuttles on the weekend or go to go to Keystone, actually, <laughs> that was a good story. 
went to Keystone all one years. day. <laughs> no, I was just went to Keystone. We're all excited because it's our first time that summer just having a day on the chairlifts, riding, you know, doing downhill runs, doing laps. And there's a rule where you couldn't ride your bike down the stairs when you got off the chairlift. And Bryn did it the first lap and we got a warning. Second lap, he rode off the stairs again and they, you know, weren't too happy about that. So they like pulled him to the side and gave him a chat and he started giving him lip back and he got us all kicked off the mountain. <laughs> <laughs> the first time at a chairlift. The very first day, first chairlift day of the season for us. So thanks, Bryn. It was pretty funny. <laughs> That was typical uh, Bryn back then. He wasn't taking he wasn't taking no no bull crap from anyone. Yeah, I'm still trying to get him on the podcast, so we'll see. Maybe after everyone's <laughs> spreading stories, he can now come and tell his side. That's actually one I haven't even that just came to mind. I haven't thought of that for probably fifteen years, you know. So that's the that's the beauty of this. I had Rennie on and we had so many funny stories from that time. And I, <laughs> I it was simpler times, like you said, just dirt jumping, downhilling, and you guys were performing, I think. I think people. I missed, think that's the thing. Like we weren't. Were. We weren't like training as such. Like, but just based on the sheer volume of time we were spending on our bikes, it was, you know, you could not get fit and strong just by the sheer sheer time of on the bike we were doing. So it's um yeah like now I wouldn't just go out and we used to do that all the time back then too when you know before I even raced overseas that's just like me and. Lindsay Klein was probably the main guy I rode with. Well, definitely the main guy I rode with growing up. So, and like, especially on the weekends, we'd ride most afternoons after school and, you know, we'd just go for hours after school. And on the weekend, it would literally be, I'd rock up to his place where we had downhill runs in his backyard because he had a bit of a hill there. And it's actually pretty gnarly, rocky technical little trails, which is a good little private training ground we had. And um, so we'd literally ride from nine o'clock in the morning and, I'd be there at his place still till dark. So like weekends were like, we could be out on our bikes for 12 hours straight and barely stop for food or anything. Yeah. That's incredible. Hey, it just shows you what like repetition and, and, and practice does. Like you guys just kind of dug it out in the dirt, literally, you know, and some people think, Oh, he's naturally talented, but there's a bit of that, but so much work and, and repetition came in. Well, I think that's it. The The biggest part is not just like having some talent, but just the drive and the, the want to do it. I just knew like from, you know, nothing in school. I wouldn't say I was like a bad student, but I just didn't care about anything at school. And I just always knew that, you know, especially as soon as I started sort of doing pretty well as a junior up and coming and that, that that's what I wanted to do. And in my mind, like it sounds ridiculous when you say it out loud now, but in my mind it was like, it wasn't if it was going to happen, it was when it was going to happen sort of thing. I just had that sort of self-confidence and sounds arrogant, but um, that's just how I felt, you know, like I just, I was going to do it and that was it, whatever it took, like however many runs I needed to do and just getting faster and trying new things on the bike. And probably one of the best things that I've always used to think was like crashing never really bothered me. Like you could lose skin, obviously broken bones and stuff like that or a setback and, and whatever, but none of that ever deterred me. Like just could lose a bunch of skin, be hobbling around cause he's sore and everything. But if I could ride my bike, I would ride my bike. If there was, if it wasn't something that was physically stopping me from riding, then it, just, it wouldn't stop me. So that was something that sort of was a big benefit, I think as well. And probably one of the things that is different now, like when I crash now, I get so angry. <laughs> I just like get up and I like kick the bike and maybe not kick the bike, but, 
you know, I definitely, you know, let some naughty words go. So I just don't handle crashing now like I used to. And it's not because it hurts any differently. It's just I get so annoyed when I crash for some reason. I just don't know what's changed there. So well, you're I hate the saying of like, getting well, old that's exactly what I was about to say. Like, I absolutely hate that saying. People say, oh, I'm too old for this because I honestly, I don't feel like that. But obviously something's different that, you know, crashing makes me angry now or it used to not. Yeah, I just touch wood, try avoid it, but I wasn't. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. You'll see now when you don't have to clock in for a race, you might start avoiding the crashes because it, it does hurt. But I think when you're young, it does hurt. But you've just like your mind is so committed to what you're doing. It's just a byproduct of going fast or yep. trying to go fast. So you were constantly, you know, pushing the limits, pushing the limits. And if you crash, you're like, okay, well, that's the limit in that turn. But that's just a scab I'm going to have to deal with. Yeah, that's part of what I loved about it too. Like I actually used to get kind of annoyed with myself if I wasn't crashing because it was like, if you you haven't crashed in two weeks, you haven't been trying hard enough. <laughs> that, that's like the way I thought the whole time. So when I did crash, I was like, yes, I crashed. Sweet, I'm pushing it. This definitely sounds like an Aussie mentality and that's probably why you guys were, were so fast and pushing each other as well. And, you know, like at World Cups, we'll be like, okay, follow me. Um and following you guys, yeah, I'll just take a chilled run. It was never chilled. Like there's no chilled, <laughs> there's no chilled with you guys. I still remember rocking up actually at the end of that 2003 season. We had our national champs at Mount Beauty, and I'd been out, you know, with my kidney incident from Fort William at the start of the year. So I'd, you know, spent the entire year injured, and then my first race back was Mount Beauty, and obviously that was pretty much Sam Hill's breakout year, and. He just won his second junior world title and had some really good results in elite in downhill at World Cups as well. So, And I got there and first run, he's like, oh, yeah, just, just follow me down the track. My first run, he'd done like two or three, so he was still getting to know it too. But I just remember he was absolutely flying, like just a chill run and just absolutely pinned, super muddy. And, yeah, just definitely all pushing each other was definitely a huge help. Yeah, I mean, that year definitely is breakout for him and he would have been high on confidence as well. And, and, and what he was doing in those sort of early years was a little little ahead of the game. And you you mentioned that you, which some people don't know, it could have been an incredible year for you because of the speed from the previous year. But you went to the first World Cup with Sam, with Rennie on not much budget, and you actually got really badly hurt and missed a, missed a whole year, one of your first sort of, elite years that you could have been racing yeah no i mean that was honestly it was pretty hard to handle at the time just because i did have some good momentum coming off 2002 even though that season ended up with that broken elbow at caprona as well at world champs so but i just knew i was going fast and when i was back on the bike early in the new year i was just knew i was riding well and super ready for the season i think we had what we had before that we had like a Fontana race and I won that one. They had a Rennie and Sam and, and Bryn as well. And then we also had, was it Big Bear maybe? Norba? I think there was, there was, yeah, Big Bear Norba before that. And, and, um, I can't remember how I did it. I think, uh, yeah, I don't remember how I did it that one actually. Um, I remember I qualified well, but I probably threw it away in the final crashing again or something. But anyway, like went to Fort William and from, the first run, I just knew it was my sort of track, you know, high speed and all that sort of thing. And, and um, yeah, just end of the first day, just uh, the whole situation of I'll just do one more run 
and then one more run ends up me parking myself into a tree, split kidney, and that was it pretty much. So, And have they taken that kidney out, right? No, nah, no, nah, that one, it wasn't, so I'd actually lost a kid. That's what made it scary at the time. Was I'd oh, lost you'd lost one at a before. National round. I'd lost one at a national round in, in uh, what year was that? Two years before anyway, 2001, I lost one. And so that was pretty bad. And then that's it. That's actually, I was meant to go overseas that season in 2001, but that never happened because I spent that whole year getting over that kidney injury. So then to do my other kidney, my good kidney, but this time I only like the first kidney, I actually ripped the artery. People don't realize that you've only got one main artery supplying blood to your kidney and I completely ripped that out. So the kidney just died within a few hours of not having blood supply. So, and then yeah, for William, I split my good kidney and obviously just wanted to make sure, you know, couldn't mess around when you've only got one kidney. So, had to really let it heal properly. So it actually took longer to get back on the bike than the first one because it needed to actually heal, whereas the first one was just dead. So it was just done. So nothing nothing else I could really do about that. But um, yeah, I needed pretty much five months with the second one to let it heal 100%. So missed that whole season, basically. And that was a bit of a bummer because that was meant to be my sort of big year. And But then anyway, yeah. I guess eventually it all came together. So whether it be that year or the years after that. So Yeah, I mean, you've just been through some real hard shit before your career even really took off. And I think that's quite a lesson to the youngsters. And you unfortunately sometimes have to, you know, roll with the punches even though they're early on because they're going to come, right? You're going to exactly, have ups yeah. and downs. You're going to have good form, bad form injuries. Like, Looking at your career, and I listed all those accolades, but then I also looked at some of the hardships you went through and some years that years that didn't go well with, you know, mechanicals and stuff stuff later. But that's just a pretty inspiring story. And it's like you've got this fuck you attitude that I'm gonna make it. I'm gonna be out on this world stage, come high or or low water, you know. And like at what point did you sort of did it click and you were like, Okay, I'm here, I'm a you know, I'm I'm meant to be here. Um, and then it's sort of, you know, then it, the momentum was rolling. Like, do you, does that make, like, because I have a race in Norba where I qualified well and I was like, shit, I can be here. I didn't back it up in the final, but I was like, okay, well, I just qualified fourth ahead of all these guys that get paid hundreds of thousands of dollars. Like, uh, the, you know, I'm meant to be here now. Yeah, no, totally. I think everyone's got that sort of, that moment where they, they think that. But I, th- I think I had... Even before I went overseas, like I know the d- domestic racing isn't exactly what international racing was like at the time, like, but I'd been sort of mixing it up and beating guys like Rennie and Rando at some races on a what would not be, you know, inaccurate to describe as an absolute piece of shit bike. So um, <laughs> that was sort of like just doing that and racing those guys. I just, I knew I could do it pretty much from before I even raced overseas just because, and I think he like Rennie was always really good to me as a young fella. He always sort of encouraged me along and he just, he'd tell me, you know, you've got what it takes sort of thing. So that was obviously a big confidence booster for me and just having, you know, that support from those guys who are already doing it overseas. So, but probably, um, I mean, 2002 definitely like had some results out. You had my first, you know, Norbert podium at West West, West Virginia 
And um, probably the big one, though, that year was the Durango Norba, where I qualified first by, I think, like seven seconds ahead of guys like Kavarik and like all the guys that were just like killing it at the time. So, um, but of course, I completely threw it away in the final. With I got through all the hard stuff in the final and crashes, lost the front end on like one of the most basic turns. And um, so I just finished off the podium in, I think I was, I don't know, sixth or seventh or something. But I think my, my qualifying time held up as the quickest time overall still. still so that was obviously a big um, confidence booster for me. And and then just, um, but yeah, probably not, honestly, not really until, I mean, I had those moments, but 2005 was when I first really started putting things together consistently and getting wins and almost won a World Cup. Just got qualified fastest again, but got beaten by Manar by 0.2 of a second in the final. So I remember just, that angel, angel fire. Angel fire, yep. Yeah, man. Freaking Manar. It's like, dude, you've got so <laughs> many and you're going to have so many. Can you just... just well, that, that was the thing. Like, I was actually just thinking... I remember how mad day, you like, were. I was, I was happy with second, but like... I, I had a, had that feeling at the time and still had that feeling through my whole career. Like at the time I was like, he's going to, he's already won tons. He's going to win tons more. Like I just want to win one, you know, like, so, I mean, everyone has that story too. Like you win one and then it just sort of seems easier after that. So um, it was just, it was one of those moments where I just felt like I really wanted it and I had a really good run, but he just, got the better of me by 0.2 in the end. So I was kind of bummed, but happy at the same time. And that's, I mean, yeah, I guess that's a normal reaction. Like everyone always wants to do well, but you know, you, you can't have it. It was a good lesson too. Like you just can't have it all your own way the whole time. So. Can we compare those two? Because I was listening to a psychologist the other day and you know, the term choking or, you know, blowing it, but he mentioned, he's like, but if you've never been in the situation before and you're not comfortable with it, is it really choking? So, like, if we compare qualifying first at Durango, wherever you said, versus, okay, you qualified fastest at a World Cup and you came down and you, you did a pretty flawless run from what I can remember. Like, I don't think you blew it, right? You just got... No, absolutely. Was I, was, I was really happy with my run. Like, I think I went, you know, a few seconds quicker than my qualifying run, but Greg just went... I think he knocked off something like six seconds off his qualifying run. So he just had a, you know, a heater pretty much. So he just really nailed it. And I, I still nailed it, but just didn't nail it as much as him. So. And, and like, cause what do you think about that? Like if you now, you know, we'll get to that way later, but like mentoring athletes, it's like, well, you've never been in this situation. It's, it's more like it's going to go not that good. You know, your body feels different. It reacts different. I know it's a long time ago, but it's quite an interesting comparison to qualifying fasters throwing it away in a very easy turn and then you've got like an even more pressure-filled situation at a world cup and you did you know you delivered as good as you could on that day it's i i think you know unfortunately you have to accept that you need to get comfortable in these situations before you sometimes can perform oh there's definitely an aspect of that but like honestly i never thought like i never felt like i was choking as such like it just felt like it was just bad timing of when I made a mistake pretty much. Like I'd, I'd always feel just as nervous before qualifying 
as to the final run, you know, so it wasn't like I felt any extra pressure. And honestly, at that point in my career, I was so young. I always went in with the mentality of, you know, it'll all click one day. Like it doesn't have to be today. Just don't worry about the results so much. Just, you know, obviously you want the result on the day, but just, it was like, just, just lay it down. If it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, you know, you're like, you're 20. So you'll, you'll have heaps more races to come. And that, that sort of, I think for me was a mentality that definitely kind of worked. And eventually that led to, and that was kind of the, the whole reason I got into four cross as well was I was having more crappy race runs or basically actually I wasn't having crappy race. I was riding tight in my finals, like in 2004, my first year on Yeti. So I was always qualifying really well, but then going slower in the final because I was putting all this pressure on myself to get the result, which obviously wasn't working. So then I decided to, you know, put a bit of energy into four cross because I was like, well, it's one weekend, two races. So if you do well in one, it'll take pressure off the other. So that was sort of another thing that, and I think my consistency really came along the next year going in with that sort of mentality. So I think that's a big thing is just learning little tricks for yourself of how to, you know, mentally get through a weekend and deal with the pressure in your own way. So, yeah, that's interesting. I do remember that, like when slalom was around or this four crossing. That's I was wondering why and how you focused on it, right? And that makes sense because if you have a good four cross on the Saturday, I mean the next day is like a bonus. So you had that feeling, like, well, sponsors are happy. I'm pretty happy. <laughs> well, Let's yeah. Go that... See if there's a cherry on this on top. Totally, yeah. I mean, that was the big thing then. Is like still trying to make a name for yourself. And while I'd always say that I've primarily raced for myself and, you know, don't care about what sponsors think so much of results. Like if you do what you want to do for your personal satisfaction, then everything else will sort of fall into place, you know, but um, definitely had that feeling of once, you know, a result in four cross potentially happened on the, the day before, then, then anything else was a bonus. So that was the exact sort of mentality that I, that I took into that. So, <clears throat> and then was, so now was it just a natural progression when the results started flowing in four cross uh, or is it like you needed a new challenge? Like, can you not sit still? Like what, what pushed you to focus so hard on four cross um, sort of after those years? Um, I guess like it's something that just came naturally. One thing I've always done and what's led me to all the different disciplines is I just follow sort of what I feel at the time. Like I've just always had really strong, I guess, gut instincts of the direction I should go that, and I just, just follow what I want to do at the time. So in 2005, like, I guess it all kind of started in 2004 when literally I was not doing any like training for four cross. It was purely for downhill. Like I did no sprint training, no gate training, nothing. It was just whatever I had is what I had. So, um, and four cross races were going really well. So, um, I put a bit more emphasis on it in 2005 and that's when everything 2005 was definitely my first season that I was like really, really happy with like consistent and, but then when I got ended up the season there, you know, world champs got second and downhill was definitely still the focus for me at that point. So I'd started doing some gym stuff and some sprint training and sort of had my gate, my gate start sort of a little bit figured out. And, um, but obviously as a result, that second at world champs kind of probably started swinging my focus a little bit. 
Um, I, I had that BMX background as a kid, so it just all sort of came very naturally and um, it's just something I felt like if I really focused on it that I could be the best sort of thing. So I guess my gut instinct was to just sort of, without even knowing it at the time, I you know, I started racing BMX a lot that off-season again and, and um, yeah, just one thing led to another, I guess, is probably the best way to put it. And I guess the results started coming in and, you know, won my first World Cup for four cross in 2006 and it just sort of kept slowly building from there. So to the point where like by probably, I'd say even by 2007, I just had no focus on downhill whatsoever anymore. Like I was still racing World Cups and whatever, but I still like loved it, enjoyed it, wanted to do well. When you're in the gate, you can't help but sort of get sort of switched on and get that sort of mindset. But I was under no illusions that that was like my priority for the weekend. So, yeah, and and I think the sport had moved on a bit. I, by two thousand seven, I don't think you could multitask. I mean, no, definitely by then, like everyone was, everyone by then was going one way or the other. So, the fact that I was putting all my energy into training for four cross was definitely, you know, I'd gone from. Remember one thing I was always really proud of, early on was even though. I'd had a lot of race runs at World Cups where I'd like sort of crashed and done that like some dumb things. But until 2007, I'd never once finished outside the top 20 at a downhill World Cup. So and all of a sudden, 2007, I'm like, you know, getting in the 30s and 40s. And because I, I literally wasn't riding my downhill bike except for at World Cups. Like that was the only time I was actually riding my bike. So. At the time, I was like getting frustrated with the results, and forecross was getting better and better. But then you look back on it now, I'm like, why the hell was I expecting to get a result when I wasn't even riding my damn bike? So, yeah, even a man of your talent and experience, um, if you you've got to be sharp, put on the it. work in. You got to be sharp. Like, there's time to not ride it, but coming into the season, I mean, you see the guys that have spent time on their bikes now, and uh, you mentioned training and getting in the gym. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like you have only trained yourself. And if so, I mean, how, how do you commit and, and are confident that that's the right thing for you? I know Lopes did the same thing pretty much, but I I kind of like someone else taking care of it. And I don't have to think about it. And I don't have to worry. Or is it kind of a passion of yours? Um, oh, it definitely was, yeah. Like, actually, when I started, and I think it shows in the, the upswing of my results, that the guy that really got me sort of, interested in it was a sports scientist with the BMX program called Mark Osborne who worked closely with the BMX team and and um just the way he'd like break down like this is why you do this this is why it will help you this is how the body reacts and responds to it and this is why you'll get faster from doing this training so just the way he explained things to me and from there I just developed a real love of just you know, reading articles, whatever I could online and just really trying to figure it out for myself. A lot of like the entire off season then was just basically spent trial and error. Like, yep, that works. And I, I feel like I always had like a strong bullshitometer for like people who would say certain things in training or working. And, and like, I just listened to some things people were doing and I'm like, that just sounds like an absolute crock of bullshit. So I'd kind of just like, honestly, a lot of it to me is just like, it's, it's not rocket science, you know, like, specificity is a huge thing like you do something that you're required to do over and over again you're going to get better at it you're going to your body's going to adapt to it like obviously that could lead to to burnout and things like that but um it's just something that you know I just I really tried a bunch of different things and figured it out and 
worked out what worked well for me and Sharples as well was actually well he was still you know being the, the national coach at the time and he was the the BMX head coach as well leading up to the 2008 Olympics so he always had some good ideas and he could sort of we always got along really well with that and except for a couple of moments where things might have boiled over but um I'd say 95% of the time <laughs> we just sh- had a sh- shouting match or what? we just had one incident at Chula Vista one day which involved him I can't even remember what it's, we've, we've joked about it since. Like I can't even remember what we were arguing about, but he took my Olympic bike and ghost rode it off the back of the, the start hill. No way. <laughs> like, and that start hill's how high? <laughs> no, no, not the extra. Sorry, behind the start hill, there was like an embankment sort of thing. Okay. It was off the back of the start hill. So, okay. But it was still a, probably a good, um, I don't know, still probably a good sort of five metre tall little embankment that he rolled it down and just watched it go end over end. I'm pretty sure you deserved it. (laughs) I'm sure I did. I was like, (laughs) I was definitely, I'm not, you know, not too proud to admit that I could be a pain in the ass over the years. If I was told to do something I didn't want to do or didn't, you know, agree with something I was being told to do, I'd, I'd sort of make the other person well aware of that. Which has also led to quite a few arguments with Damien Smith over the years. With who? Damien. With yes, Damien. The Yeti team manager. Yes. Yeah. But like thought... again, like we we just joke about things now. Like we get along really well, so we always have like we're both the sort of people that we can you know go and simmer down and come back a few hours later and be like and talk it out and you know clear the air sort of thing. So I think that back and forth is healthy in some ways. So. Yeah, but I, I think you come from a place that you're trying to achieve, you know, excellence. And if you feel it's this part's going to help it and what they're trying to get you to do is going to derail it. I mean, that, that's good that you're able to stand up for yourself. And for the listeners that maybe don't know, Scott Sharp was a legendary Australian downhiller that you heard was helping coach. He actually coached me for a free pair of shorts or something because I couldn't afford him. But uh, he's just he's done great stuff for the sport and great stuff for the Aussies and legendary downhiller from back in the day. But you mentioned the BMX thing, and and that's kind of when it, it took flight and you skipped ahead sort of to 2008. But they talk to me about that decision because we were like, Graves is going to the Olympics? Like, what's good? I mean, that's incredible. Well, I think, again, that was just um, started racing BMX. I think I got my first BMX again, always raced as a kid. So it kind of was that natural progression, or at least it came back to me pretty naturally. Like even though I didn't ride a BMX for probably, I don't know, nine or 10 years, like I always rode tracks, you know, just on the mountain bike, but I never stopped riding tracks. It was just a matter of getting used to the BMX again, which was definitely a bit of a, a challenge, but you know, with all things you can get used to something, you see what guys do on like road bikes with trials and, you know, doing backflips and that sort of stuff. Like it's pretty insane what you can, you would, you'd never think you could do that on a road bike, but guys do it. So, um, but it just kind of became a natural progression. Like the four cross was going well. And as a, you know, a thing to help four cross, like I started racing BMX and that just kept getting better and better and better. And I'd figure out my training more and more. And, and, um, I just felt like I was probably, wouldn't be unfair to say that um i probably took the training a lot more seriously than the other guys in the australian team at the time which a few guys 
probably didn't like that so much when I came along because I kind of kept to myself. They all wanted to sort of do a bit of partying and that sort of thing, and I was just there purely to, to race. So I figured, you know, it's the Olympics. You know, why are you here trying to party if um, if we're all fighting for the Olympics? And there were certain guys like, even like Wade Boots, like we definitely have, I'd say, don't want to talk crap on him, but we've never gotten along. Um, and I really felt like a big part of that was like he saw me as the guy taking away his Olympic spot from him. You know, he was always the BMX guy and I was a mountain biker coming over to BMX and he always obviously raced mountain bikes as well. But for whatever reason, we just like never clicked whatsoever as people. So, um, but there was just that sort of little bit of awkwardness and that just made me even more fired up for it. You know, like just, I just really wanted to kick their asses pretty much like all of them. So that was a big motivation for me. And I think that's that kind of, mentality just helped me a lot and that's what kind of you know beyond the olympics that's oh actually probably around 2007 we were talking yesterday about um you know riders i've seen as natural talents and that's just is what i saw in sam willoughby so from day one like we just really really clicked and similar sort of mentality towards training and that sort of thing and and just made us you know we got really close really quick and and he was obviously, I just saw him as a huge natural talent. Plus he had the work ethic and just wanted to do what he had to do. So yeah, he was just like, we just, there's so many good memories of like just being with Sam and hanging out with Sam and training with Sam. He'd come and like, he stayed with me for an entire summer at my house and I'd stay with him and at his family home in Adelaide and we just train together and really good memories there. Yeah. I can only imagine. And, and, you have done a lot of sort of training with teammates or competitors. I mean, other people wouldn't. A lot of riders stick to their own and, and don't want to share secrets. But it seems like you were the opposite. You know, Richie Rude uh, or Aaron Gwynn in Downhill. I'm sure you have given over a lot of expertise. Like, yo, what was your, your strategy there? Well, I just think like, like Richie... Well, the two guys that I really have felt a close sort of bond with is Sam and, and Richie as far as developing riders and helping them. You know, we just, just clicked personality-wise, which anyone knows how quiet Richie can be. Like, clicking with him isn't sort of a, a normal thing for <laughs> yeah. a lot of people. Like, he's a lot more chatty now, but especially when he was young, trying to get two words out of him was pretty damn hard sometimes. So, But for whatever reason, we just clicked personality-wise. personality, personality wise, So, But I always just thought, like, you know, I'm helping them, but at the same time, that sort of young, pure talent and just just reminded me of when I was their age, that real sort of, you know, by that point, things for me had evolved a little bit from that pure just wanting to ride my bike and became like wanting to get results and that sort of thing. So just seeing that they had that sort of drive and motivation, but at the same time, still having that sort of youthful exuberance of just wanting to ride their bike 24-7, so... It was just something that kept me progressing and pushed me along too. So definitely I've, I've always felt like I've got just as much out of them as they've got out of me. So definitely beneficial yeah, I, both ways. Yeah, I kind of figured that looking at it and even asking the question, I, I, I saw that because even, you know, when I got on, you, you don't want to ride as much. I think that's just naturally a thing. You know, maybe it's a little bit more you get bored quicker or you've done all these things, right? So it's not as exciting. But the kids, like when I was on teammate team with Danny I mean 
he wouldn't stop riding and it forced me to go riding, forced me to get quicker. So yeah, I see where it can actually push you, you know, and I think Greg's having a bit of that, especially with his new, new teammates. But what about the Olympics? Like this is quite a huge thing in, in many other sporting disciplines, right? That's the pinnacle. Mountain biking only has that in XC, not in downhill, right? So you've got the world champs. But can you talk us through that experience of, of, of going to the Olympics and, and, and being there around all those athletes from different disciplines? Well, yeah, I, th- I think if it was um, not the Olympics, if it was just some other big event, then maybe it wouldn't have happened. Like, so I definitely copped that sort of crap from the other riders. I was just doing it for the Olympics, which at the time, I like, I really did love BMX. Like, I loved the sport. And so I was just, again, it took me back to sort of the, had that youthful sort of, I was always excited to ride my bike and always wanted to train and just wanted to get quicker day by day by day. And, and, um, obviously the Olympics, you know, is the pinnacle of sport pretty much. So, um, doesn't, you know, racing for BMX doesn't get any bigger than that. So when that was a real opportunity, like there's no way I was gonna not sort of take that up. So, but honestly, even, even as close as 2007, I wasn't really thinking about 2008, I was sort of thinking more just keep building towards 2012, but um, I guess things just ramped up really quick and then went to the test event in China, which is a World Cup in 2007, and I got third there. So obviously from then, that that actually was enough to get me selected on the team right then and there, so I kind of knew that it was on from that point. Even though like some other guys could have come along, they would have had to have like either won or like, won a world cup or got second like the only way the, the first thing on the selection criteria was world cup results in the 12 months leading up to the olympics so that race pretty much was enough to get me selected and um so from then that's when i kind of put all my focus on that and didn't really race too much in the way of mountain bike stuff that year just um just did what did i do i did fort william world champs and then canberra after so I think I only raced like three big races that year. But, you know, the Olympics was just the focus. So I just – and it was actually really good to just be at home and being, being able to focus on that. So it was just sort of a little mini break from mountain biking that I think I really needed to really fuel me to get back into the mountain bike thing full-time from 2009. So. And the actual experience at the Olympics, like, you know – making the team must be incredible and, and going there. Like, you know, oh, it's, me immortals, we're never going to go. So it's like, it is everything that people said it was like, I mean, you just see being a sports fan in general, like you just see someone, you know, that you know exactly who that, who they are, you know, exactly what they've done. And you just see them walking past, like no big deal. And obviously, you know, I've never been a real, just, you know, person to go up to someone and just start you know chatting to them when you know they don't want to be bothered sort of thing so but just seeing you know the amount of high profile people you know tennis players and track and field like I remember seeing Usain Bolt just like cruising around you know Michael Phelps just walking past you like no big deal sort of thing so is that in the pretty, athlete village in the village yeah 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 so, oh man and just like the so people those in are the, the two that stand out like just in the in the dining hall and all that too like just like, yeah, just really cool. But there is a little bit of a flip side to it as well, which was sort of you see the amount of people who basically put their entire life on hold and go 
financially really backwards just for the shot of winning, you know, a medal, which if they want to do that, I think there's a little bit of sort of brainwashing going on in some sports in particular that an Olympic medal is going to change your life because honestly, there's even Australians who won, like we don't win that many medals compared to other countries like America and that at the Olympics, but, you know, we might get like 10 or 12 gold medals or something, which I think is still pretty damn good, but um, there's some of those that won gold there and, you know, a month or two later, they're just forgotten about, you know, so there's that sort of flip side to it where they think it's going to change their life and they're led to believe it's going to change their life, but it, it really doesn't. So at the end of the day, it is just like a, it is just like a sporting event. So that's why I think my feelings of like, you've got to do it because you want to do it even grew stronger after that. So I was under no illusions that even a gold medal at the Olympics was going to completely for the long term. I'm sure it wasn't the short term, but I, I never thought in the long term it would change my life. Plus when you see all the, the media commitments that people are expected to do if they win a gold medal. Like I wasn't the right guy for the job, so to speak anyway. So I would have probably just burnt more bridges than made bridges by saying no to media stuff at that point anyway. Yeah. Have you seen Michael Phelps has helped produce the weight of gold? Oh, I saw that. It was, it was, it was so spot on. Is it really? Having, having been there and done that, I could relate 100%. So if you haven't watched that, you know, I've got no no ties to that film in any way, but if anyone out there wants to watch something that's 100% on point, that's that's definitely a good one to watch. Very entertaining. Yeah, yeah, it very, is. And very it's, true. It's, it's true and sad. You know, there's no support. There really is Exactly, support, yeah. Like yeah. you said. Well, in I, America, I think... it might have helped to get a medal, right? It, it does change you a little bit, maybe your backing and stuff. But, man, it's horrific. There is just no support for the mental side, whether it's Olympics or not. There isn't. People are talking about it more and more, mental health. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it really sort of shone a, a spotlight on that that issue. Well, that's what I think I was, like, just super lucky to instantly, like, two weeks later was the Canberra World Cup. So, instantly, as soon as I got back from the Olympics, like, the very next day, jumped on the, on the hardtail again and got out to the BMX track to sort of just start playing around on that and another few days later flew down to Canberra. So I just instantly had that to sort of sink my focus into. So that was definitely personally like a huge thing, but I do remember that feeling of, cause I remember every day for months and months, you know, six months or more leading up to that race was just a singular, just, just such a tunnel vision focus on that race. And then when you wake up the morning after and it's done, it's definitely a really weird feeling. So and that said yeah, to it, it's such a double-edged sword because, like, you have that opportunity and people who have that sort of big come down after the Olympics, like, you ask them, you know, would you go through it all again? And they'd say yes every time pretty much. So that's kind of a double sad part to it, I guess, is, like, for a lot of people, you know, they'd do the, the whole experience all over again and you sort of can't blame them for that because it is such a big deal at the time. But, yeah, there's just, yeah, a lot of lot of things that people wouldn't even sort of consider that can be you know not so good on the on the back end of that whole deal so yeah because people are only see <clears throat> from the outside you know the highs the the potentially the money and and all the accolades and and sportsmen get a lot of shit for it complaining about you know what are their issues you know, everything's relative and these pressures and 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 the things you feel afterwards the emotions like I, I don't know if people would wish 
for the highs if they knew the real lows that that come with it yeah no it's 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 such a i mean it affects everyone differently too like like i said like i was just lucky that had the mountain bike to instantly you know refocus on so um but i guess that's and i go in full circle to today um i guess that's something that i'm really grateful for now like i just have no real major competitive desires as i talk right now saying this like i feel completely content with what i've done and all i know is like coming back from cancer like i just knew that i still had that competitive drive and wanted to do some more stuff so to speak so um but then that kind of i guess that has gone away now i feel completely sort of at ease and content with everything that's going on and ready for whatever's next yeah man what a fascinating recount thanks for that and and coming back to mountain bike like you said it is i like i I agree with you it is it's lucky you had it as well as you had it as a plan and it it was your passion of yours getting back into mountain biking and you you did get back into downhill uh before the the enduro portion right which i think thinking about it was so tailor-made to you it's actually scary but was it harder getting back into downhill after missing time and maybe your focus wasn't there or your body had changed a bit, I think, with the training? Like, can you open up to that? I mean, that can't be easy to deal with. Um, yeah, I guess, like, I was super focused and I think that showed, again, like, I had three really dominant years there with four cross where uh, I was trying to think of, I think... I think I won like two thirds of all the world cups in a three year period. So um, definitely that was sort of the goal and like, that was sort of what I really wanted to achieve. But uh, especially in 2009, I had um, downhill going on on the side, which was, that was probably the first year that, you know, again, not to say that, you know, I was still in well, you know, 26 or 27 or something at the time. And, and, um, but definitely not 19 or 20 anymore. So that was the first year where I was like, whoa, man, doing four cross and downhill, this is a bit much, you know, like, especially because, like, my focus was on, like, anything less than a win in four cross just wasn't what I was happy with or wasn't what I was after. So, and then also wanting to, like, feeling like I had something to prove with, with downhill. So and I had some decent downhill results that year, but nothing super fantastic. But, again, it just, as soon as the four cross sort of things started good with the win of the first world cup round that year like it was rare that i'd get on the downhill bike through the season it was just like riding it at races and just and that's what led to then not racing the next year was just like just feeling like i was going through that whole cycle again of like all right i know i'm just going to focus on full cross and the downhill's going to suffer and it's going to annoy me that i'm not doing as well as i could or should so then in 2010 i sort of stopped downhill again and um and then I guess I didn't do that for two years down. I was, I was still doing a few things here and there, but just not racing everything. Just I'd do some races that suited me, some some stuff in America, some, you know, some pro GRTs or maybe the odd World Cup or two, but definitely not the whole season. Got a fellow like was going around in circles with it a bit, but... You there, Jared? Yeah, I'm here. Sorry, sorry, I just thought. Yeah, sort of... No, no, no. It went. It went a bit quiet. I was wondering, and um, so, and then enduro pops up. Like, is that 
just something you were like, that's going to be suited or oh, like yeah, yeah, this natural like, progression. You're like, okay, I'll give it a go. And then you're like, well, this is pretty suited to me. I know how to well, train. I like downhill, but I'm not focused on it. I think that was the thing that like people didn't know about me early on is that my background originally racing, you know, BMX as a kid and then cross country as a junior before I got into downhill as well. So, um, that was definitely like the best base I could have had from my really young years sort of thing. And then, yeah, I really wanted to, cause like 20 into 2011, I stopped for cross cause I just felt like I had nothing to prove with that anymore. Like it just wasn't going anywhere for me. Like I wasn't, it was at the point where it was like, if I won, it wasn't like, yes, I won. It was like relief that I won and sort of, cause that was kind of almost what was expected of me at the time. And I was really getting sick of that feeling. I wasn't getting any real satisfaction even from winning world cups anymore. It was just relief when I won. So 2012, I tried downhill again and it was during the 2012 season again, like I really wanted to do well at the start of the year and almost got a podium at the first round. And then from, for whatever reason from there, my motivation for it just fell off a cliff basically. And I really didn't have much enjoyment in 2012 at all. And then it was about mid season when the whole EWS becoming a thing was announced. And we actually tried a couple enduros. I did the enduro crankworks that year. And I did, we did another one in Spain, actually Richie, myself and Damien all did it together. And I won elite Richie won junior and Damien won veteran men. So I think, and just all riding around together. And I was like, man, like I just absolutely loved it. And, all I could think was like, if enduro was a thing when I was a kid growing up, I don't think I would have ever gotten into downhill. Really? So, so I was just, I just loved it that much from day one. So, it was just exactly, it was exactly what we did as kids, you know, like you'd all cruise up to the top of the hill together and all race each other down. So, all the guys I rode with when I was sort of growing up and as a real young fella, that's exactly what we did. So, I think that's how people can relate to it so much. Yeah, no, I mean, it made perfect sense. It didn't suit me or fit well with me. And I think you've mentioned like, oh, you know, people think it's 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 easy or it's where downhillers go to die. It's just, and I think, I think people don't think realize that. If you just extend your career, it's not a good idea unless you're really focused on it because it's an incredible, well, uh, there's, brutal there's, sport. There's sort of no doubt that that downhill background is a huge sort of thing to have in your pocket sort of thing to, to doing well. But there were so many guys in 2013 that tried it like top downhillers that just thought they were going to come in and just waltz away with wins. And they were absolutely like, some of them were absolutely getting their asses handed to them. So it's just, it's honestly, it's a totally different beast. It's kind of evolved a little bit more towards the favor of downhillers, I'd say. Um, but you definitely have to be an extremely well-rounded rider to do well at enduro. And I think that's, that's something that definitely sort of, you know, was to my advantage, just like having that background from multiple different dif disciplines and just being able to apply how each of those disciplines work sort of thing. And there's always a way you could sort of milk a bit more speed out of the track or whatever, and just calling on skills and, strengths that you had from other disciplines over the years so yeah just just something that really motivated me and something that had my interest from day one so 
And what did like so? What did you focus on when you switched over to it? Like what? And like what are some key things? Like we can obviously look at Sam Hill. Obviously, he's going to have to get fit. But for you, fitness was never really a big issue. Like, what's the trying well, like to enduro and where you're like, okay, here's my weakness. If I can sort this out, I can win. I'd the say, title. I'd say at that point, I'd been doing so much sprint stuff that fitness was my problem again. Then, so I went sort of. Uh, sort of that's where 2012 was really good and I always felt like that while I didn't enjoy it at the time and I wasn't getting satisfaction from just doing downhill um it was a huge help in the long run because it's sort of you know before 2012 I knew I had to get fitter again because I couldn't I was just a pure sprinter before that for like years and years so that base of fitness had sort of eroded away slowly and um so 2012, just, you know, getting a road bike again before that year and just building the fitness slowly and doing, you know, what I thought were long, long rides at, you know, maybe 90 minutes to two hours, I thought was like a really long ride then. So, but it just, it was a good sort of stepping stone towards where I needed to be fitness wise for enduro. But as I sort of got, you know, time to really knuckle down for 2013, like I got, that's when I started racing cross country again, because I was like, all right, I've got the strength. I know I'm reasonably fit. I know I've got the skills if I can just be as fit as all these other guys. So I just sort of dove headfirst into cross country because what I've always loved about cross country is if, if you don't train hard and you're not prepared, you will get absolutely smoked and like everyone will see that. So, you know, come prepared or go home with your tail between your legs sort of thing. So it was just like, all right, I just straight away was like, I'm going to do national champs. That was my goal. And everyone was like, are you sure you entered the right thing? Did you mean to enter something else? Like, no, 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 I'm here for the cross country. Like I did downhill as well, but um, everyone thought it was a bit of a joke when they saw me on the start list for the XC, but I knew I was going pretty decent at the time and I was under no illusions that I was going to win it or anything, but I knew possibly I could get a top five and I ended up, ended up seventh. So that was sort of got a, got a few people taking notice after that. And when I look at what I was doing, I really wasn't, it was at the time for what I'd been doing, it was a big training load, but man, like compared to what I've done since it was just like nothing basically. So, but just like, just learning that the diet side and getting down to a, you know, I'd I'd been as high as I think 2011, I was like 93 kilo and just like all I was doing was sprints and gym, sprints and gym, dirt jumping, bit of BMX track, sprints and gym, sprints and gym. And so I got up to 93 kilo and then at the start of the 2013 season, I was down at about 70, 75, 76. So just like that just taught me a ton about diet and how that was another thing that sort of become a bit of a, an obsession over the years is just how diet affects everything from like your energy levels to your, your hormone levels to just your focus, like how you feel mentally and physically and, that, that's another whole thing that we could go on about for hours and hours. But, um, yeah, just just knowing that to get fit and everything for Enduro was, you know, something that I put a lot of focus on for 2013. And it was a complete unknown. I'd only done a few Enduros the year before. But, honestly, when I look back on it at the time, I think I kind of nailed my prep for 2013. Like, by so a little... What, it, what is, like, a week of, like... A, like a week of prep look like? Can you take the listener through like what a training block or week would look like? I know it varies from preseason to 
to, or like from beginning of off season to like near a race, but you know, somewhere in the middle, one of your big workload weeks. Well, definitely the the biggest weeks at the time, which was a you know a big step up from previous years for 2013. I was doing some like purely on the road bike or in the gym, like some you know 20 to 25 hour weeks was pretty common for quite a lot of building the fitness, and that could be up to getting close to a thousand k in a week. Like I think some weeks were well into the 800 sort of deal. And then you try to do a bit of gym stuff on top of that as well. So, and then just obviously with that, you have to be really smart about your, just your recovery. And then it became even more about if I wasn't riding, it was just being off your feet and just trying to recover and that sort of thing. So it was, it was a very steep learning curve, but again, it was just like, that's where I like being my own coach. Like I just sort of worked out a plan, what I thought was manageable for myself and just, went after pretty much and tried to get better with listening to my body. If I was tired, I rested. If I felt good, maybe I'd do a bit more and that sort of thing. So um, it's kind of hard looking back on it now because like it is actually quite a long time ago. In some ways it feels like yesterday, but I'm trying to just struggle to recall some certain sort of things I was doing at the time, which I hadn't done before, but I just remember it being very different to what I'd done any year previous. So, Well, I mean, 20 years of training, I think you'll forget a few sessions or you're forced to forget them because, <laughs> I mean, they're horrendous. I think, like, well, I mean, from my recollection, like intervals, and the, they're so bad until they're done. Like the minute it's done, it's like, okay, now I'm satisfied. I can go sit on the couch. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I guess that's something that, that you know, honestly, I've, never had an issue with like training like I've always wanted to do it actually I, I've always sort of said that I I hate rest days because I just feel like I'm I know they're necessary and you've got to let the body recover but I just feel like I'm doing nothing on those days so rest days always kind of bum me out and obviously there's always hard interval sessions and stuff like that and I, I can't say that I'm gonna miss doing that too much but um when you're on form and that's that's the big thing for me as well is when you know that you know, you're fit and strong, like, it is, it's still just as painful, but, like, some part of me, some masochistic sort of part just loves going through abs, like, you, you'd be climbing a hill or something at, you know, VO2 interval or something, and you're like, god damn, this sucks, you know, like, this is really torturous, but some part of you just wants to, at that point, you just want to dig in and go even harder, so I've always sort of had that, and even now, I can still, you know, switch that on, so... I've always sort of enjoyed that side of it, that real. And you can always sort of, I've always broken it down. And one one thing I've always told young guys, like when you're training hard and like doing the right things, like there should only be about two hours of the week where you're like, man, this sucks. Like this is really brutal right now. And if you're doing any more than that, you, you're probably overdoing it. So it's just, you can always, for me, like a big part of it's always breaking down something in my head to, you know, make it seem like not not such a big deal and you can always sort of find ways to get yourself through a tough session. Like, and a big part of that is just, there's always days, like everyone has those days where they just don't want to get on the bike, but so many days as well, like you just make yourself get kitted up, get out there, start riding. And as soon as you warm up, you're like, oh, this is sweet. You know, this is, this is awesome. So like a big part of it for me was like just, just getting out on the bike. And I still try to tell, 
as many people who ask that question like about motivation and stuff i'm like dude the biggest thing you can do is just just make yourself get out the door it doesn't matter if you if you never feel it like just just get out there and say you're going to do half an hour that's all you have to do some days and just just get on the bike get started the amount of times i started with like a, oh i don't want to ride i'm just going to do half an hour and then three hours later you're still out there so that just happens so many times it's not funny Geez, that's awesome to hear it like from the likes of you because we could all sit and go, man, he's so motivated. Like, I don't know how he, he does it, but I mean, that's it. You've just preached preach to the choir here. I mean, consistency is key and, and just doing it, just getting out there in some days. It seems like a real just like decision you made. And, and I was going to ask you because you also had a lot of fun doing it or at least put on a fun face, you know, like joking with teammates and, and trying to keep it light on, it seems like it's a conscious decision, even on days you're like, okay, I would rather sleep in today, but it's on the training program and, and I just got to get out there and do it. Well, I think I think one thing that I've been very lucky with is I'm, I've always been a morning person too, so it's not a struggle. Like I've, I've never been able to sleep in ever since I was a kid, you know, like I don't ever remember really sleeping in. So like I, I talk about sleeping in the last week and a bit since I've been home from national champs and a sleep in now is five thirty, you know, so it's not it's not <laughs> so it's not four o'clock anymore, but five thirty is my sleep in now. So um but no, like I think from what, you know, people have ever seen in videos and stuff like that, that's totally I've never felt like I had to put on any sort of I think that's something early on that, you know, there was some some riders who early on got opportunities because they were playing sort of, you know, it was called the ass kissing game sort of thing and I've just never been that guy to kiss ass and I guess just be yourself and, you know, people will see you for who you are sort of thing if you just are yourself the whole time. So something that – and that's that's just me too. I don't want to be someone I'm not. So I say what I think and and act how I want to act and just, just be yourself. So something I've always tried to do. Yeah, and maybe pass on to the youngsters within reason. If you're uh, rubbing up too many people the wrong way, maybe there's, there's something to think about. Yeah, maybe. But, yeah, there's, there's probably been a few instances like that where you're like, "All right, I better, I better settle it down," or you know, filter yourself from saying what you really think a bit too much. So there's always a time and a place, but that's what growing growing older gives you. You know, you can't buy buy experience on the bike or. Or even offered, and and speaking, speaking about experience or maybe lack thereof in the downward, what is it like? You saw Gwyn come onto the scene. What was it like, like just seeing him just emerge, basically? Yeah, and like just obviously we knew he had a motocross background, but he seemed to take to it pretty quickly. Yeah, I think like being that he came on with Yeti, that potentially like I'd I hadn't actually met him, but I'd been hearing from all the, the guys there and, you know, Rich Houseman sort of was on Yeti at the time as a teammate and Rich got him involved with the um, the development program starting at the regional level, moving up to the national level. So he'd actually been around for, you know, a good solid 12 months going to a lot of races and this was in, what was that, 2008 that must have been. So I was off doing the Olympic thing so I never actually got to see him ride or race that year. So, um you know, I probably actually didn't even meet him until the next year, I don't think, in 2009 at the, the first World Cup, so when he was on the factory team then. so, um, But I guess, like, from what I've been hearing for months and months and months about him, like, 
it was no surprise when, you know, busted out that tent at Monsonani's first ever World Cup. So, yeah, that was no real, no real shock because I'd just been hearing just crazy stories about what he was capable of. So, and it didn't seem like, to me at least, it didn't seem like that whole scene really phased him. Like, he didn't seem to care that he was going to World Cup and that, you know, it certainly didn't make him nervous, it seemed. I'm sure he was nervous, but. It seemed like he was kind of—he's just that personality where he was just sort of ready for it, you know. Wasn't gonna get the better of him that he's at, you know, the biggest races in the world with the fastest guys in the world. So, yeah, he did seem comfortable pretty quick. I remember, it, I think it was that, was it? Yeah, it was that year. And then Schlad being the end of the year, and it was actually look—it's one of the better European tracks to have in the wet, but it was still wet. There were still roots. Mm. Actually, I think that was honestly, probably the. That was probably the result that I thought was most impressive, even more so than right? his. Right? At Sludming. I think he just was, like it was like, and I was 10th or the other way around. I was like, this guy can ride roots already in the wet. We're fucked. <laughs> this is not good. Uh, yeah, exa- exactly. That's why I, was, I think I was, because I, I remember watching that one at home on Freecaster. And because obviously Blanky won and Juzzo was sixth, I think. And then Gwynny. Yeah. Was I think Gwynny he was 9th or 7th. He was he was right there anyway. He's right there behind Jazzo, yeah. and um, I just remember thinking how cool that was, and the fact that he'd never raced in Europe before. Even though Monsonan is kind of Europe-y, like it's it's very, very much like Europe, just the dirt and the rocks and the roots and usually muddy. But um, just the fact going to Europe, you know, going to Europe isn't like being still in North America, so to speak. So. Yeah, super impressive for sure. And I think from then everyone just knew which sort of direction his career was going to take. So, yeah, definitely. And and, and you guys definitely played a role at, at Yeti there, absolutely. As Jazzo as well, a, a lot. He was he was there with him. <laughs> I was just thinking of a I was just thinking of a funny story. Hey, that's what this podcast is about. <laughs> I told you, you've got you've got one bit of homework, and that's all these untold stories. Yeah. Now, the, the next year, because obviously at the end of that season, that's when Blanky went to Lapierre and Jazzo went to Trek. So there was basically there was basically me and Gwynny on the team. Hang on a minute. Oh, no, sorry, Blanky was still on the team that year. It wasn't until the next year he went to, to Lapierre. But anyway, for some reason, like, you know, Yeti, Yeti's always been amazing at stretching a budget. So... You know, whether it be a, a good thing or a bad thing depends on who you ask. But um, one thing is, for some reason, Gwynny and myself always got room together that year in 2009. And when I say room together, I mean not in a room together, but sharing a double bed every single race. <laughs> there was, there was, sorry, I'm probably going to crack up because <laughs> it was just so funny at the time. It was like four o'clock in the morning at... Well, yeah. No, it wasn't Leah Gang. It was, oh, Maribor, sorry. We're in Maribor and we're in this awkward little double bed. And um, we, we both woke up at the same time, about four o'clock in the morning, in the fetal position, facing each other. And he just like opens his eyes and he goes, We must look like a love heart right about now. Because <laughs> <laughs> we were so both in that exact European position. Double beds. Euro double bed, so it's like two yeah. single mattresses two that pushed together. It makes zero sense. And we, yeah, just just like 
every every single race was like we were just in a double bed together. It's just just how it was. Like every race, was like oh, I guess this is our room. Like so. Okay, but you th- do know things aren't you always. Could mat- you could take the mattress off, and one of you could be on the floor, which you obviously used to. But you decided. Not <laughs> how to. we just just I mean, saying that's, that's the what thing we about, used to do. That's the thing with the Euro bed. So you get your own your own individual little doona or blanket or whatever so as long as you had your own individual blanket you could space out a bit and didn't seem to bother either of us like we were both very good with keeping to our side of the bed so i don't think either (laughs) of us was like a big wriggler or anything like that so we didn't exactly remember that a couple times we did set up like a a pillow fortress in the middle like a divider but if there was enough pillows to go around but that's not usually the case in europe either so here's, here's your one pillow that's too thin deal with it (laughs) <laughs> Mate, this is this is literally not mountain bike related, but it's budget related. So, end of a season, I go home via England, and I go and visit a good friend. And I used to race with him back here, and he's starting up his career in England, and he's sharing with another good mate and his brother. So I go to this place. It's a one bedroom flat in England, and the one brother's in the living room, pull out couch. That's fine. So then I I'm like, where am I going to sit? No, blow up mattress on the floor. I'm like like you. Well, I'm used to that. It'll be fine. And like middle of the night, I look over and these two are sharing a bed. I'm like, whatever, budgets are budgets. And then I look again. <laughs> I'm like, there's only one duvet here. Like at what point can you not afford a second duvet at least to have your own duvet? I'm like, these two guys See, that, that's, that's the key are point sharing with the Euro a duvet. Bed. Yeah. That's the key point that made it okay with the Euro bed. Like you each had your own. Yeah, color, 100%. So. Yeah. You're yeah. just sleeping close to someone, but you have your own duvet. You know, you're not cuddling. Hopefully yep. not. I looked. I'll never forget this. I look. I'm like, what are you guys doing? Don't even <laughs> tell me this is a budget thing. I'll go buy you one. But like, you haven't uh, thought to get dear. your own duvet. Oh uh, dear. Yeah, I, oh, I guess man. maybe they were just that was comfortable. And I didn't didn't even think about it. Like the things like that. Like over the years, like you don't even consider it at the time. It's like, oh, this is normal. This is fine. Like I'm still going to get to sleep. Like. It's not like I'm going to wake up with his arm over me or something like that. So we were just used to it. It's how things were. So, But it is a bit of a lesson to some of the youngins out there that, you know, it's definitely a, a double-sided thing to the whole living your dream professional rider thing. Like it's not just all good times and and um, riding your bike and having fun the whole time. There is nights where you will have to share a double bed with another rider. So but just get tight. It's not unlimited. It's not not exactly as everyone always thinks it is, but say it if you want to say. The they spoiled brats, the youngsters of today. Aren't they? <laughs> now we sound old. I, 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 there is some really good young fellas out there that, that you know they get it, and I think they're the guys that will go far. But I've just seen things over the years, even on Yeti with some of the the young guys, and just like just like wow, like I would, would not have said that or even thought to do that or that, and would not have been an issue with me when I was their age. Like you just wouldn't have dared like give that attitude or something like that. Like I won't go into specifics, but just, just some moments that you would at the time, you're just like, wow, you know, this little shit sort of thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess it's human nature to not, you know, you don't always appreciate what you, what you have or, or that it could be, could be worse. But I mean, that's great that you'll have that experience for them. But I mean, you, you move on to, to a, a big, a team like specialized right and you've still got motivation but man did you have some shitty luck 
Like, oh, yeah. As we said, with the good comes the bad, and any career is going to have these sort of slumps, and, and a lot of them out of your control. You seem to deal with it well. What was it like internally, though? Oh, man, like rough. Definitely very rough. rough. And it was... Okay, so I don't want to throw anyone under the bus again, but one of the big things with the contract negotiations was, like, I like the bike. I've always been a fan of, of four-bar designs. I've always done well on them. I always, I can honestly say I've always liked the bikes. And obviously, the you know, the sponsors were good. A few, like, a lot of things, pretty much the entire bike was different, but it wasn't, like, anything drastically different, you know, going from Fox to RockShox. Like, obviously, Fox has been a supporter, a sponsor for many many years of my career but at the same time like rock shocks obviously always makes good stuff as well they know what they're doing so that wasn't you know part of what i was worried about but i said you've got to change your tires like the tires are not up to scratch like and the only thing i regret about the contract is that i didn't get something written in that we could run maxis and being like really you know digging my heels in about that because with bad tires you cannot compete you know i know you had some struggles over some earlier years with tyres that potentially didn't work so well in the mud, not to name any names, but... Um, no, no, we won't name any names, but I think maybe we should clarify, like at the top end of a sport, when you're looking for milliseconds and, and competing against the best riders in the world, you want to be on at least similar stuff. And, and sometimes as those speeds or certain conditions, they weren't as good yet. I mean, that's fair to say. Well, the thing, the thing was that Enduro was evolving super quick. Um, and yeah, like I said, I should have really had something in place that said I could run Maxis until specialized figures that figured their tires out, but they were completely adamant. No, 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 by January, the absolute latest, we're going to have a whole new range. You know, it's going to be, our goal is to be better than Maxis. So I just sort of took their word for it. And, you know, they were promising big things and that didn't happen. But the tires at the time were made in the same factory as Maxis using the same rubber compound. So but then the problem was that we only had, basically, we didn't have downhill casing tyres. So initially the issue wasn't grip. It was just purely flatting all the time. Inserts didn't exist then. Um, I think I flatted. Well, the very first round I snapped my chain twice. And then after that, I think I flatted every single one of the next four rounds and some of them being like front flats and, flats that would um, destroy the wheel as well, then I'd have to take a time penalty. And and then it was like the team was giving a little less support and you could sense that, you know, then it was this sort of air of like Jared's not performing, like, you know, we're paying him to perform and win races and he's not doing it. I'm like, well, how the hell can I win a race when I'm being forced to use tyres that can't even get through a race? They didn't understand how quickly the, um, the sport was evolving and the tracks were getting gnarlier and rockier and that sort of thing and and then probably in 2017 the development was stepping up a lot and then we did have some casings that could not flat but then they went to their own factory and then the rubber compounds were just like concrete and then that was also the enduro wet series year or the first of the enduro wet series years yeah when that when that was the joke and every single race was wet and the tires you just could not ride them in the wet so, and at the time I sort of didn't want to make too much of a big deal about it because people, you know, if you did, like people would say, oh, he's just complaining. 
but um, it honestly yeah, a was one, such a massive thing. Either because you've exactly, yeah. been brought up to to be a professional, right? So you can't really talk about it while you're with a, a team, which is the challenge. Yeah, and there was there was definitely a feeling of like, you know, I'm not sure exactly, but I'm pretty sure I was probably the highest paid enduro racer at the time. So I kind of had this feeling of like I can't piss them off, and I've got to just, you know maintain do what i can to help develop the tires quicker and let them know that this isn't working out but the amount of times we begged and pleaded to just let us run max's tires because we're not getting any results on these tires we can't even finish a race and that just makes the, the bike look bad makes all the other sponsors look bad so but they just would not i uh, never understood why they wouldn't just let us do that because it could have solved so many trip. problems exactly yeah it's like, been done so many times look exactly um, I'm it, not at head of any of these companies to make those decisions, but at, at some point, yeah, it, it, it doesn't make logical sense putting all that money into riders in a team. Yep. Um, and again, I think they just thought I was complaining, but at the same time, it was like... Or like it was, looking for excuses. Exactly. It was or they were beyond frustrating me, and that just started getting my motivation down. Like, they don't give a shit anyway. So, like, and I, I won, won the Aspen EWS that year, so... Things kind of got better there, and then I was actually really amped up for for Whistler, and thought you know I'd won Whistler before a couple times, and that was the next round. And then on the very first stage, on a stage I didn't even think you could flat on, I got a flat tire, and that was just like, man, like that was probably the low point of everything at Specialized for me. Like, I I didn't think a season could go so bad, and all things that like I would not have done anything differently, like. You know, I was getting so many good stage results, but then just couldn't put it together. Because I wasn't always the guy to win. Like, I'd win races based on consistency more than just, like, you know, ripping apart a couple of stages and then just doing okay in others. So I was always the guy that could, like, consistently bang out good stage results and just be there in the overall at the end of the day. So when I couldn't actually even finish a race and it didn't seem like they were listening or... They certainly didn't care that we wanted to run Maxis, so that was a huge frustration. Yeah, man. I mean, that's just demoralizing. You know, it's just so hard to deal with. I mean, I've definitely been through years as well where, yeah, the equipment hasn't caught up to where the industry is, and it's. I mean, it's people think you're making an excuse, but it's just out of your control. Same graves, just you know, sometimes it's out of your control, and people sort of like to push that you're looking for an excuse, but it really is just factually just you know, there's just uncontrollables affecting the results. Mm, absolutely, like it was, it was just like some of the things I was reading and just comments people would say, and it was just absolutely blowing my mind. Like, I was getting so frustrated, and there was a definite to me, like when I've always sort of been the guy, you know, I look at what all the companies are doing. I look at all the things that even the small companies, you know, they're usually the ones that, that are trying something different and something a bit out there kind of thing. So just like for lack of a different or better way to put it, like keeping your finger on the pulse, so to speak. And always feel like I've been on top of that, like always looking at what's happening out there. And I just couldn't believe the amount of guys that specialized who, didn't seem like they didn't necessarily even follow racing or what the trends were, but you know, their fingers definitely weren't on the pulse. There was, there were some that were really good with it. And then others that were just like, how do you have a job? Like 
who is paying you to do this? Like, no other way I was thinking about it at the time. It was just incompetence in some areas. Yeah, and it's and it's frustrating because it's your career, it's your salary, it's your livelihood, it's your longevity, you know. So I had that where we were struggling with something and I'm like, dude, I, I mean, I want to pull my finger here because I just need to be somewhere else next year. But how am I going to do that? on this, you know, so then my next year's contract might look shit. So man, it's people, yeah, people at home just look at all the positives. They never look at the whole story. And sometimes these contracts come at times when there's no chance to test. There's no time. So you're going to, we've got a month to get this deal over the table. Otherwise it's not happening. So we're not sending you anything to test. You're going to sign or the paycheck's really good. You've never, well, for me, I'd never been on a paycheck when I signed to a company that took me you know a year or two to figure out there was a design flaw and uh yeah it, it, it is tough but i guess that like we've i mean the, the the subject line of this podcast might be you know roll with the punches or where there's ups there's downs you know it's just how it's going to go in a career you know this long yep totally i mean i guess the other thing with like the whole specialized deal was like there's really nothing i regret about it like I really wanted to stay with Yeti the entire time through my career. But at the same time, I just had this overwhelming feeling that, you know, you can't just go your entire career with basically the same company and not experience something else that's out there. And, you know, at first with the owners at Yeti, there was a little bit of friction there when I said I wanted to leave after, you know, being with them for 13 years and then all of a sudden wanting to go to Specialize. But that said, like I'd always had, you know, just random friend you know conversations with Damien and he's like if any other team like this we we talked about this for years before like just randomly so there's any other team you'd want to ride for who would it be and I always said specialized just because like they've always been innovating and all that sort of thing so when the offer came up like it was something that at first I was definitely going to seriously consider and then just got sort of better and better and they they agreed to everything and and um it was too good to say no to. And with that friction with the Yeti owners, like I said, look, it's not like, it's like your son leaving to go to college. It's not like he doesn't love mum and dad anymore. It's like, he just wants to go out and experience the world and see what else is out there. And we always talked about coming back. And I kind of deep down always knew that the specialized thing was never, we'd, we'd talked about it sort of being a long-term thing, but deep down, I sort of always knew that it wasn't going to be anything sort of really long-term. So, I mean, I kept communicating with Yeti throughout the entire, and I think they ended up getting kind of annoyed about it, some of the guys that specialised, because they could see that I was sort of still closer with all the people at Yeti than I was with anyone that specialised. Still speaking to your ex-girlfriend. With the exception of our little... Exactly, yeah. It was kind of like <laughs> Just keeping that. her hot that on the side. That was the feeling I got. <laughs> yeah. So, no, like, I mean, it was it was pretty funny. Like, people at the races saw it, but people that weren't there at the races wouldn't have seen that. It got to the point where the Yeti team and the specialized team, we were organizing accommodation together. Like we were staying in, in house, like sharing houses at races, like just like doing everything together because we all just like the, the crew, our immediate crew around us, like it's specialized with Curtis and Miranda and Hannah Barnes and Patty Young and Kyle and Benno, Christoph as well, Pat and Patty being earlier on before that like we all just like got along so well and so our little crew was always awesome and 
we all just got along with the Yeti crew. So it just became easy to all sort of book the same accommodation and stay together and help each other out, practice together, that sort of stuff. So, and that's sort of, you know, it made it really enjoyable to be honest. So I think, but some other guys that specialized that weren't necessarily involved so close with the racing thought it was a little bit weird. So um, anyway, we had a good time. No, I mean, I, I, I think, uh, you know, a happy rider is a fast rider and you've got to do whatever you can to try try keep that. And through frustrating times, it must have been hard. But, I mean, you, you've you've mentioned it a few times, Jared, and and uh, I, I mean, it was tough to to watch you go through something like the, the brain cancer and also maybe it showed up later and was maybe affecting some of your results, it sounded like as well. I mean, can you... Are you open to talking about that that whole experience? Because it seems like it, it's brought you uh, as a more rounded person in terms like m- maybe the bike riding doesn't mean as much or, or having to win a race doesn't mean as much considering you went through something like that. <clears throat> oh, definitely, yeah. Like, well, basically, I mean, I've said it in interviews before, but I'm sure people sort of listening to this won't have read all of that, but is in a part of the brain that is directly related to your, you know, your motivation and some of your, basically your reflexes and that sort of stuff. And I just noticed like there wasn't anything at the time that really stood out at the time. I just thought, oh, I'm just, you know, I'm frustrated. I'm getting over it. Um, like motivation was lacking, but then as soon as I had my first scans done after we had my seizures and they found the tumor, the doctor was like, have you had any issues with motivation? I was like, yeah, I've had some big issues with motivation. He's like, well, that, you know, this would explain a lot of that. And he said it also had been growing for about two years. It was super slow growing, but it probably started a couple of years before. So I was like, well, that, that makes a lot of sense. And probably one of the big things looking back on it was like just watching GoPro back at night. I had no attention span. As soon as I started watching GoPro, you know, with Enduro, you get your one practice run. So, GoPro in that run and trying to learn key points of the stage is a pretty crucial thing. And I just, I couldn't retain anything. As soon as I started watching GoPro, my mind would just sort of wander off. I was just tired. I was just falling asleep. Just like things that, you know, years before were never an issue. And so all these little things like that he said would be affected by the tumor and where it was, everything just started clicking then like, um, Yeah just so many little issues that were affecting results and motivation. Like one big thing I remember one of the rounds early on in 2018, there was a super high speed section that led into like a little pinch climb sort of thing. So if you could no break this corner coming into the climb and just carry that speed, you could pretty much get up and over the pinch climb without having to exert too much energy. I remember on the GoPro, I was like, all right, here comes that corner. It's, it's a left-hander before the pinch climb so just lean in you know you can no break it so just trust you sort of what you sort of sort of did in practice and just no break it and you know just pin this little climb and you'll be sweet so i came in thinking it was a left-hander and as i leant into the corner i left lent into the left and the bloody corner was a right-hander oh no so i'd completely and so i just went flying off into the bushes at like 40k an hour like super, super lucky there wasn't a big tree there or something that I just would have like completely munched myself. There was a tree there, but um, needless to say, that's just one example of like the little brain farts. I just, I was just calling them brain farts at the time, but there was a lot of brain farts in 2017 and 2018. That's for sure. 
and receiving the news, like, I mean, and you have a time now to reflect and go back, but I mean, like receiving news like that, like, does your mind go, well, I mean, lack of a better term, your brain, your mind go to the worst case scenario, like straight away? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, so I'd had, I had a seizure. My first seizure was in Whistler. I got there before the rest of the team. So I was there a couple of days before the rest of the team got in. And I was like jet lagged. We just come from, from Latwil the weekend before in Italy. So international flight, um, just tired, jet lagged. And I just remember having this really sort of vivid dream, like, you know, something weird was going on. I actually felt like my eyeball was like sticking out of my skull. I remember having that feeling like, but I've always had these really vivid dreams before, like for whatever reason, I don't know what that's all about, but because I've always had so many dreams that feel like it's actually happening at the time. And I remember waking up just being like, whoa, that was a, that was a weird dream. You know, that was really weird last night. And I felt a bit sort of out of it, but again, I was like, oh, I'm still jet lagged. You know, you're not going to feel super energetic. So anyway, I got up, got on the bike, went for a ride. Um, actually bumped into Tristan Merrick, who's a good friend who's done some announcing at, at Whistler before and some sort of stuff with EWS and some other TV stuff. And I just bumped him, into him when I was going out for a spin. And he said to me, later, like, man, you did look really sort of spaced out that morning. And, but anyway, so had that seizure, um, had another one then, got through the whole race. The race actually went pretty decently somehow. And I just remember not like feeling like myself, like things were definitely getting worse with the tumor. Obviously, you know, seizures had started happening. And then the very first night I got home was just like, like after that race in Whistler, just watching TV on the couch with Jess and um, out of nowhere, just had another seizure. And she thought, you know, I'm always sort of doing something dumb. We were watching this really weird show. I don't even remember what it was, but it was a super weird show or movie or something. And all of a sudden, like, I just started, like, having a seizure, and she thought I was, like, joking. So she was just not sort of doing anything, and then she saw that I was foaming at the mouth, and then she's like, oh, shit, this is serious sort of thing. But again, like, we just sort of put it down to jet lag, and again, I'd just come back from Whistler, and I was just super tired, jet lag, stressed about, you know, contracts were up and that sort of thing, and and um, basically forgot about it. Just thought, you know, my brother's got epilepsy, so just thought, no, maybe it's just epilepsy, but just put it down to the stress and fatigue and jet lag. and But then probably been home a week and I had a basically a real serious one and woke up, you know, woke up with paramedics putting me on a backboard, getting me out of my, my bed at like four o'clock in the morning. So um, then we went and got the scans done. Tumor was discovered pretty much straight away. And then... They didn't say too much straight away, but they're like, oh, you know, we've already booked you in to see a specialist in Brisbane. And at that point, you start freaking out. And then you sit down, and like straight away tells you, yeah, it's, it's a tumour. you got cancer. And that absolutely hits you like a ton of bricks. Like, I don't think that sort of thing can, can sort of, you, you can't prepare for that. That's for sure. Like, I just remember just being completely stunned, like, one of the few times in my life just being completely speechless, just like all I was thinking was like, holy shit, wow. Like it's so true. Like when they say like, you know, cancer, that's something that happens to other people. It doesn't happen to me sort of thing. But, you know, obviously it can happen to you. So 
But um, I guess as it went along, the one thing I was really sort of fortunate about was every bit of news I got was always, you know, I responded really well to the radiation first and surgery. And so I was, I was booked in for surgery within two weeks of that, of discovering it. They wanted to get it out straight away. So, but then all of the chemo and the radiation reacted really well to that and kind of figured out chemo as I went, like I just discovered that if I didn't eat at all, basically during chemo that, um, I wouldn't get sick, so I had a few days with my head in a bucket, so to speak. But um, and definitely a few bad days where, like, for whatever reason, you just start going down that rabbit hole of, you know, you know, one day you can be super confident, like, I always sort of thought, like, no, nah, this isn't going to get me, you know, like, I got this. But you always have those moments where you go down a bit of a rabbit hole and just start thinking, like, what if this does get me? You know, what if this is it? Like, so. But I think I was sort of snapped out of it fairly quickly. But um, definitely not something you expect to hear. And and um, I mean, just absolutely at that point, life gets put on hold. You know, we were we'd been talking about starting a family and that sort of thing, and instantly that's just put on hold. And you know, the rest of the season with races are put on hold. And so it's very life changing in that way. Fuck, I can you know, only begin to imagine it's so heavy um, listening to you speak about it and, and talk about those those down days because you never know what someone's going through, you know? Mm. I mean, that was, that was kind of thing where I was, I was always very mentally positive about it. Like I really – and that's when I started learning more about sort of, you know, diets. And I, w- I wouldn't say like you know, the whole, you know, keto diet and that sort of stuff. And But, you know, I, I never – went that sort of extreme. I sort of went that way a little bit, just like um, basically not giving my body, like there's a lot of things like processed meats, for example, like stuff like that, that cancer just sort of thrives on. So just different things with your diet to to sort of starve cancer cells, so to speak, and just learn a ton about diet. And that became a bit of a a passion and a bit of a motivation into. And there's a lot of that stuff now that I, I still do now. And that's just, something I wish I knew years earlier just that just makes you feel good and like it's a good healthy diet and you really realize like I was saying earlier the whole diet mind like just how it's all connected like there's so many things that are connected to your diet and just overall health that I'm, I'm super grateful that I learned and like you said as well like now like the things I've learned and sort of the, the mindset of like it is just bike racing, you know, like it just really put things in a perspective, so to speak. And um, just the things I learned from that, honestly, like, and I, I wouldn't change anything. Like, I think it was a really good thing to go through now that I can look back on it, you know, now that everything's all good. But even then I thought at the time, like, you know, this will just make me a better person, make me stronger, that sort of thing. So, and just, I guess it's part of that mindset of just always trying to, take the positives and learn from it, you know, positives, negatives, learn from it, move forward. And I guess just make the most of every, every opportunity you get good and bad and just not try and let anything get you down. So it can be difficult at times, but I think if you make a conscious effort to be positive about things, then that's something that can really, I mean, that's the number one best life decision you can make. Like, really work out what's good and bad in your life and try and get rid of the bad and do more of the good. So 
it's still something that is just getting stronger and stronger with me all the time. Yeah, no, I mean, I can't speak to battling through something like that, but they do say how how uh, important it is for the mindset and, and having people around you. I'm sure your wife was an incredible support crew and you've, you know, in interviews saying your family and, and everyone supporting you. Um, yeah, I mean, it it is easier said than done, but it is just a conscious effort is, you know, understanding the negative emotions and then trying to fill it with something something positive and um did you have like did you have in the back of your mind like you wanted to get back to racing i mean i know you said everything was on hold but is that little thought process there like okay i need to now go through this so that i can get back to that like you had this greater goal of of racing even though now you're saying it's not that important but at the time you wanted to get back out there that's kind of all you knew yeah, I mean, I I'd had that. It sort of re. It was, a, it was a combination of things, I guess. It was like knowing that having the tumor there was affecting what was going on with the previous years, and then you know not getting results and not being as mentally switched on as I had in the past, and just not really caring to be honest at certain races, just being like, yeah, oh, I don't give a shit. Like, just the way it affected my motivation was definitely different to what I'd experienced in the past but and then at the same time like everything was on hold with me but I did know I wanted to get back to racing again obviously but I can at the same time honestly like I'd with the exception of just I just wanted to see how Richie was doing and Curtis at the end of 2018 when he was still racing but apart from that like like I, I wouldn't even watch the races until maybe like I might look up the results the next morning and purely just, just to see how Richie was doing um, I really didn't care about it. Like it wasn't the center of my life at the time. And that really brought things into perspective too, that people who are racing think it's the center of the universe because it's the center of their universe. But in reality, there's very few people that really care. Like that's why you've just, you know, just cemented that sort of thought process of mine of like, just do it because you want to do it, do it for yourself, but don't do it for anyone else or for any other reason. Like you do it because you love it and because you want to push yourself and you enjoy it but don't be under the illusion that that the guys on pink bike or whatever making comments are going to, at the end of the day, they really don't give a shit about you or, you know, who's winning races. Like everyone's naturally a somewhat selfish person. Like everyone always just wants what's best for themselves. So they certainly don't care. I mean, sure. There's a few guys out there that are a super fan sort of thing. Like, and like they, they care at the races they're into it, but, um, I don't know, you, to me, you've just got to really, you, you do it because you want to do it because you love it. And that's the only reason, basically. No, I mean, that's an incredible perspective. And I think uh, us younger riders could have definitely helped with that. But it's funny how, how life hits you with these these setbacks and things to force you to grow or to force you to, to reflect. No, I mean, thanks for sharing all that, Graves. I know it's not easy and We've maybe spoken a bit offline about the comments and things that can get you down. There might be 99 positive things or support, and then there might be one uh, jealous, uh, someone going through his own shit and feels like it's time to shit on someone else's career or something. Like, is that tough to deal with? Yeah, like I've, I've never been much into reading comments on any any sort of website or anything like that but I mean every now and then you do just because you're curious as to what earlier on I definitely did because you don't sort of know how you're being perceived and I always had this thought that if you read comments and you 
if you know if if you're a dick, people will see it and they'll comment on it and that'll be that'll become the perception of you sort of thing with your you know with people following the racing and whatnot. So I always sort of used to read comments because I thought it'd help knowing what people were saying about you and thinking about you. But I guess it's like, it's easy not to read the comments when basically nothing bad's being saying about you. Cause you know, you're just being yourself at the races and you know, if someone wants to come up and have a chat and say good day, like the least you can do is, you know, give them five minutes of your day and ask them how their day's going. And they just, that that's an impression that sort of, lasts with people and something I've always tried to do is if they're going to take the time to come and talk to you, then have a bit of a chat back. It's not, you know, it's not difficult. It's certainly not something I've ever found a hindrance or like, it's always, it's, it's nice when someone comes up and talks to you and they're excited to talk to you, like makes you feel good. But um, yeah, like, and when you do read comments on certain websites, like there's a couple out there that just seem to breed hate, like, and like I've been around for long enough that I just know exactly what that person's like in real life. And they just, they're not people that you'd ever sort of be around. They're not positive people. They just want to bring people down and talk shit because it makes them somehow feel better. Even if it does make them feel better, like it probably doesn't make them feel better, but they feel compelled to do it. And just, so I've got zero minutes of the day for that person. So no, just don't let them. It's fascinating. Hey, like, not I wonder if one of those people persons would ever come up to you. You know, you got the positive people that'll come up to you, but then like a negative person will never come to you and be like, Hey, you're full of shit. Hey, you did this. And you're like, Well, that's not really the full story. So if you want the full story, we can talk. But if you want to make an assumption, yeah, fucking exactly. go for it. You know, it's just it's just the world of the internet these days. There was like a, a funny story that Curtis told me that it happened to him a couple of times where um, get someone who was, would be trashing him out nonstop on whatever, you know, internet, some sort of forum section or something, they'd be trashing him out and he just, he'd find out who they are. And then that actually come up to him at races, wanting selfies and autographs and that sort of thing. No way. The same person. So just like, did he ever call them out? Whatever sort of, I'm sure he did at some point, like Curtis is, he's pretty, uh, he doesn't take bullshit in that sort of way, but I wasn't there personally to see that, that situation go down. But um, just interesting, you know, like what did I, I heard a while ago that someone say that it's like the internet gives people the excuse to be the worst version of themselves. Like whatever, whatever reason they do that for, I've got no idea, but my wife, Jess is also doing like a psychology degree and just talking to her about stuff like that. Like, the human mind is just mind boggling, basically how people, you know, react the way they do in certain situations and love to try and bring people down to make them feel better. Like I've never really been on the the receiving end of that, but um, obviously in certain situations, it's always someone who wants to talk shit. Like, but honestly, as soon as they, they talk shit, like I just, I'm not going to get into an argument with them because well, it's even happened to me, like, when I was really young, there'd be some guys just, like, at domestic races and they'd get into an argument with you about something and then you'd meet them at a race or something and there's some, like, super obnoxious, like, 18-year-old kid or something and you then you just feel angry at yourself that you gave them two minutes of your day to engage in some sort of pointless argument with them. So then I just, like, stopped doing it, basically, and 
the best thing you can do is just not read comments. Yeah, that that definitely is the the healthiest way to do it. And and I just think it's man, if you don't have the full full story, and almost if you can't say anything nice, then why say it at all? Unless it's a constructive criticism or feedback. But unless someone asks yeah, for the feedback, course, I mean, we don't want the feedback anyway. It's super interesting, eh? I mean, a big thing I've noticed is when there's so many times people comment on stuff and when, when you've been involved in the industry for so long and you know sort of the ins and outs and you know, you're in the know basically like when, you know, you're a writer for, you know, teams and sponsors and you're around the other writers, like you just get to know how everything kind of works and then you hear or read comments in certain things on the net and you just realize how wrong they are and how much they don't know what they're talking about. They couldn't be further from the truth yet the way they deliver it just like makes makes like just, they think they know exactly what they're talking about, but they could not be further from the truth. And that's probably the number one thing that misinformation that gets spread is definitely the number one frustrating thing about some internet sites these days. So, yeah, I mean, they just don't know the full story, but they think they do. And, and, and they give their own opinion like it's the truth. Yeah, and that's tough because those things sort of spread. And I think on my research, I've got a, a better understanding for you and, and all these things. And is that sort of soiled it to the point that sometimes you're like, I'm at peace with things and I, I kind of just don't have the energy to fuel you, your guys' fire here? Yeah, totally. Like, yeah, like I said, just be yourself. Like, I know everything I've done. I know how much hard work I've put in. And there's always going to be someone who finds something to dislike. You know, you get, you know, you think of writers like Petey and Minar and guys like that. And like everyone likes them, you know. So, And there's always going to be someone who wants to shit on them for something. Like there's just always that guy out there. So, um, yeah, yeah. You just can't let it get you down like. And like I said, just just don't read it and don't definitely don't engage with them and don't give them the time of day because you know that they're just they don't know what they're talking about. They don't care to know what they're talking about. They just want to give their opinion and beat their chest and act like the big tough guy. And they always hide behind some sort of a a username anyway. Like they're not even brave enough to buddy use their own real name most of the time. Yeah, I think we should leave it at the point like you know maybe there's some education here. Look, we all have some negative bias here and there, but we all we don't know what everyone's going through emotionally personally you know and and there's a lot going on into someone's pro career and maybe their emotions are a little bit more fragile than you think so be careful what you say online as gospel or fact when it when it really isn't you know and and things get a little bit misunderstood via text as well that's one oh, totally. thing yeah, yeah. as well so um maybe let's let's move over to some more fun things like <laughs> <laughs> Well, sorry about that. No, we got a bit on, no, no, on a bit of a tangent no. there, and 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 I respect that, and I think uh, you know let let things let's what is it let sleeping dogs lie or whatever you know. Sometimes things have just been picked apart so much, only only shit can come from it. But I do want to understand the future now, Jared. Before I go into some fun maybe questions, like, dude, you're retired now. You're like officially retired. You don't have to go try win a gold medal. You don't have to go in the gym <laughs> unless you feel like, hey, I want to do this now. So um, talk to us about the future, your role, uh, where you see it going. Yeah, well, just like 
we started talking with Yeti about this, I guess, previous to last year, because, you know, I'm 39 now. I'm not getting any younger, so to speak. Like, that was a big part of it for me was like, just sort of, I've always said for the last couple of years that, you know, no one gets to 38, 39 and then peaks. Unless you're Manar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask you about but, uh, him. Yeah, unless you're Manar. Yeah, like he was, honestly, he was like a big motivating thing, like coming back from cancer. Just like, because a big party is like, you know, can I still do this? I'm not getting any younger. I've just lost another 18 months. And then you see him still killing it. And like, I've always had it in my head, like when I was young and you'd see guys retire, like, oh, they're, you know, they're just, they're old, they're over it. You know, they don't have it anymore. Like, but you realize that they just, you know, don't, there's, there's other things going on in life. They want to start a family. They want to settle down. They don't want to travel and live out of a suitcase anymore. And yeah, their motivations dropped off. So they're just over it, so to speak. But I sort of had that fire to come back. And like I said earlier, it was before the 2020 season, I was super fired up. I was training as hard as I ever have. Felt really sharp. Felt like very confident of getting podiums and stuff like that again. And then when you know coronavirus started and that didn't happen like it just it just that feeling never came back so that's kind of was slowly kind of getting stronger and stronger and that's what's led me to be where I am now like I just the the desire to be at the top level is just not there anymore and that's I guess a natural part of life and progression with any athlete everyone's got to hit that sign it's hit that point at some time in their life so you know, no one goes forever. And I think I, I do want to say like for the young guys out there as well, like as a positive thing, um, you know, when I was young, I thought, you know, you do think it's going to go forever, but then as years go on, you do start thinking, you know, this won't go on forever. And you start thinking about it more and more and you sort of get a bit down about it sometimes, like, you know, what's the future going to bring? And you get a bit sort of anxious and, and whatever, but I think when you when you really listen to your, you know, your own guts, so to speak, and like I just knew the time was right, you know, like I was just, I didn't want to go any further. Like maybe I could, but it, I mean, the motivation's just not there. For me, if the motivation's not there and that real desire and drive to push myself, then I know I'm probably not going to get the results anyway, unless the the race like really suited me or something like that. I don't know, but like I was saying to the guys last year when I was just riding with him in practice and, you know, not actually I was meant to do some EWSs last year, but had a big shoulder injury, which sort of lingered for the EWSE races that I did as well. So that was kind of holding me back. I didn't get to ride at all, basically leading into those races. I was able to do enough to sort of stay fit, but not certainly wasn't sharp on my bike, but then we were just riding and I was like, well, you know, I just don't want to like push that hard anymore. Like I used to love, just going out there and like we talking about early when I was young, loved crashing, loved scaring myself, loved pushing my limits. And like, that's just not, it's just not there anymore. So that's how I just knew it was time to sort of pack it in. I just want to enjoy riding for what it is and completely hundred percent comfortable. And honestly, really like when it all got announced and, you know, the announcement got made and it was news and everyone knew it and messages started coming in. Like, I, I was just happy, you know, like, felt like, okay, it's, it's official. Like you said, though, like, I wanted to point out that it was retirement from full-time racing. So I don't want to say that I'll never race again, but something pops up that's interested, interesting to me, then, 
you know, I'm just that sort of person who I'll, I'll train and get ready for it and do it, whatever that may be. I'm not sure. But um, just, I mean, I think all competitive people will have some sort of a mindset like that. But, I mean, it, it's just nice having the role now with Yeti, working with the young guys. You know, Casper's a huge talent. I can't wait to do more with him because, you know, he's another young guy that, you know, spending last year with him and we just, we, we clicked pretty well and we get along really well. So um, working with him more and I think he's the next big thing and he's, him and Richie feeding off each other is going to be going to be awesome too, and and Bex Barona on the team now too. Like she's got a lot of talent. Won the last round in Scotland, so um, and by her own admission, you know she's got a lot of room for improvement still. So I think. Sorry, I'm just reaching for my phone charger. She's about to go dead. But um, now she's got a huge amount of talent and a lot of room for improvement, and just working with them and like going back to what we were talking about early, like with Sam Willoughby and Richie a few years later than that, just I get a huge amount of um, huge amount of satisfaction and I just love helping the young guys learn the things that took me years to learn. And that, that's the whole thing is like things that, because I never really had that sort of mentor type person in my life. There was bits and pieces that, you know, from Sharples and guys like him that I sort of learn and other writers, but pretty much had to do it all myself. So um, just having someone that can bring you up to speed and try and help you with the ins and outs and get you up to your full potential years and years early than you'd normally get to if you had to do it all yourself would be, you know, like I, I'd like to think that I'd helped Richie get, get to that, you know, like to the point where he won his first world title at 19 with EWS. So, um, yeah, it's just... Um, I just love working with the young guys and just getting them up to speed because I just would have loved to have known what I knew when I was, say, 30. If I would have known that when I was in my early 20s, you know, and you just had all those years where you just have things way more figured out, just would have been a huge help for my career. And, like, I got there eventually, but I think it just took me a long time to get to my potential sort of thing. Yeah. And just yeah. I think it's gonna be super fulfilling for you. Um and, and maybe over the time even more so than your racing, like helping people and, and like you say, sharing that knowledge. I, I can kind of relate on a on a smaller scale because I also didn't, you know, didn't have that many FOSS riders around me when I was at home preparing for seasons. So you had to kind of learn by bashing your head, you know, sometimes into the ground as well, which is an ideal. But uh, we'll see in the long run what that's like concussion-wise. But, uh, dude, that's awesome. I think you're <laughs> going to be such a valuable asset and tool and, and hopefully get the fulfillment out of it as well. And um, I've got a few quick questions that maybe can be quick or long, depending on you. <laughs> I do have a, te a tendency to waffle on a bit. No, no, but that's so the whole point. I'll try to – That's the whole point. Um, All right. Well, off, off we go okay, then. Okay, off we go. Well, this is going to go Rennie question mark. It's going to go Rennie, what? Rennie, Nathan Rennie. I'm just, it's a, I'm just going to leave it at that. Rennie, I thought you said, I thought you said ready. No, no, Rennie, Nathan Rennie. What springs to mind? And just let, just, I'm just, just gonna, talk about Rennie. I'm just going to put the name out there. Maybe something springs <laughs> to mind. Uh, Rennie, big influence early on, helped me get on Yeti. Huge talent on the bike. I was actually watching the circus the other day, and there's a clip early on, and it was always a standout clip 
hang on, is, is it the circus? I was watching a bunch of old, before I even raced overseas movies the other day, like Transcontinental and the circus. And Richie was asking me about them and he was asking which ones that he want that I recommended he watch from like way back in the day. And those two came to mind. And there's a shot of Rennie at Maribor very early on in the video. And he just absolutely obliterates this left-hand berm. And that for me was just like, I remember seeing that the first time just being, oh, that was so sick. And then he completely just about like his next right-hand corner, an absolute mess. And like, but to me, that's just like, that was just Rennie's style, you know, just balls to the wall and it either worked out or it didn't. He sort of, he figured out how to make it work out more often than it didn't later on. But um, yeah, no, we were always like good friends and a lot of good sort of stories. Some maybe not suitable for the audience, but <laughs> Good times, good times. Nah, good guy. And I saw him not saw him not long ago and, you know, there's no sort of – everyone sort of knows that he's had some issues with alcohol and that sort of stuff. So it seems like he's in a really good place now and, and um, moving things forward with his life. So, yeah, he's, he's sort of very involved with the local scene again, which is cool to see. And, and um, nah, always, always been a big Rennie fan. Yeah. Um, fondest place to go ride your bike? Oh man, I I don't think you can beat home, can you? Like, there's something something I absolutely love about just knowing a trail at the back of your hand and just putting your brain on autopilot and just um just getting after it really. So, looking forward to more of that in the future, getting after it, but hopefully not crashing. <laughs> but just <laughs> just like that, touch 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 wood. It's absolutely awesome. Like where I live now, I am I'm a one minute ride from the main trailhead, so I can literally be on dirt in one minute from leaving my leaving my driveway. So part of the part of the, the move over here was because of that. Just to be where I used to live was probably a you know a twenty five minute trip to the trails and you know twenty five minutes back, which again isn't super far. And some people have to do more than that, but it was just sort of wearing me down when you're out there, you know, five six days a week. So now not even having to drive anywhere and if i if i run out of water i just go home fill up a water bottle go back out again so um just part and of that, still that whole I got that still still in Twombe, yeah yep it's just nice it's just part of that whole like the scene here is absolutely insane now like the trail network is pretty massive both illegal trails and legal trails oh, sorry we're not meant to talk about the illegal trails but i mean that's just a normal part of riding now all the you know all the off the trail map runs at the get build and there's such a good crew here of guys that that love building and and um honestly we've got the train we've got a decent sized hill and it's I, I think the riding here at home is pretty awesome so um love it at home just you know waking yeah, up in your own bed more... yeah and you're gonna have a bit more time to do that. Uh, you, well, we might have mentioned his name, but maybe not. Who do you pick from the industry to help you in a bar fight? <laughs> I mean, there's one that springs to mind, probably because he's got a lot of experience with bar fights, and that'd be Kavarik. But um, yeah, or well, Ross Milan. I thought you. Might oh, Ross. Sorry. Say. Oh, Ro- Ross. No, as well. no. I mean, Kavarik. Probably good, but I think Ross, well, I feel Ross, like Ross, Ross is a, would be more like on top of it to make the fight end well. Kavarik might be a bit intoxicated. Yeah, that's what I was going to say next, actually. Kavarik, some of the fights I've seen him in, he's not exactly 
coherent enough to even know what's going on. So I don't think that's necessarily a good thing in a bar fight. But Ross is definitely the guy like, you know, he's super loyal friend, always would have your back. Like not that we ever, like he was never looking for trouble. I'm definitely, I always say like I'm a lover, not a fighter. So he's kind of the same. Like he puts on a big tough guy act, big meathead act. But um, he's a lover, not a fighter too. So, But he'll definitely, push comes to shove, he'll shove. Yeah, definitely. So I kind of want to hear your side or just ask you, did you ever have to try move a condom filled with water <laughs> from your bed at any point in your career? Did I ever have to move one? No, it just exploded on me. Yeah. I never got a chance to move it because I didn't <laughs> know it was there, man. <laughs> and who planted that? Uh, one will never know. <laughs> I must actually take credit for the idea. I think my late dad had mentioned it in like an army trick. Although when he went to army, I don't know if a condom existed. So I don't really know where the story started. But I was told that if you, f- you put a towel in a basin and then you fill it up with water and then you use the towel to lift the condom. Because if you touch a condom, it just breaks, as you found out. Oh, it definitely broke. So I feel like I was a naughty little 18-year-old shit hanging with the Aussies. Oh, that was just And that decided was totally to give our, the idea to Rennie and Bryn, yeah. That was just our way of life back then, wasn't it? Just fucking with each other the whole time. Yeah, do you remember any... Well, like, what, do any pranks that come to mind that you pranks. did to people other than that one or got done? I don't... Uh, I'm trying to think. Nothing that springs to mind. Um, ugh. Nah, we were, we, were, we were very well behaved. We were good boys. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> 18, 19 year old kids from Australia, South Africa, away from home. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> it, it was fun. I think like none of us ever got into any trouble. So that's the main thing. It was all just amongst no, ourselves. No, that's actually pretty impressive, eh? We didn't, we, we still performed it was, it was harmless fun really i think the thing was we, we were all we were, we're all too young to actually we go out and drink or anything so we're all you know with the exception of rennie maybe i think we're all sober the whole time so nothing ever escalated too much yeah that's probably definitely. a good thing that the, the u.s drinking age was 21 for sure yeah for our uh, mountain bike careers otherwise they could have all told a different exactly story. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a most impressive thing you've seen on a bike that springs to mind? Most impressive thing. Um, I think one thing that's always stood in, it's a story I've told a bit over the years, was when Sam, that first year on Mad Cats, it was probably the first time I just knew Sam had something that other guys didn't. I mean, everyone saw his potential before that for sure. Like he'd already won the junior world champs and whatever. But what, what are the jumps? Is it, is it Pine Valley? The jumps... Out in San Diego, do you remember those? Yeah, the one. Yeah, that's in. Yeah, yeah. So we were there one day, and there was this probably wasn't massive, but it was probably a good thirty-five foot bit of a step up into like a super tight. I can't remember if it was a left hand or a right hander, but so there was this bush on the inside, and Rennie, myself, and Bryn were all trying to get over this double. Hit it quick enough, but scrub it enough that we could stay low and then get on the brakes and get as close to this bush on the inside of the corner as we could. That was like the goal was like scrub it and try to get really close and hug the corner super tight by this bush 
and we're all getting slowly closer, closer, closer. And then Sam came in on his first attempt and got probably a foot inside the bush. Like just didn't even like, we were like getting close to trimming the bush and he just came in and just got inside the damn thing that we couldn't even get near. So that was like, to me, that was like, I was like, all right, this kid's going to be good. You know, like we already knew he was good, but it was just, I was like, what the fuck? You know, like we were trying so hard and he just came and made it look so (laughs) simple. So I guess that, and there's a few, few sort of Richie stories of things that he'd just do. Cause I guess Richie's probably the standout of like when I first saw him ride, I was like, damn, this kid's good. Like to the point where it didn't seem like he had much self-confidence. I think he knew he was pretty good on the bike, but to me, there's always like, you know, there's moments with Sam Willoughby as well. BMX, it's a little bit harder to tell because everyone's kind of doing the same thing and you're stuck on one track, but just like the things Richie do, like the way you just break out into a drift on the sketchiest gravel road you've ever seen or just doing random things. Like he just, I just knew straight away, like he was going to be good. And that's where, like I always sort of had his back that, you know, was very adamant with the powers of bit yet either like you've got to keep this kid you've got to sign him like trust me he's going to be good and I think you know they listened to me in that respect and he, I mean he's everything that I thought he was going to be basically like and still to this day he just keeps getting better and the things he does on the bike are pretty just when he's playing around he can the funny thing with Richie is not many people know that he also has the goofiest most ridiculously stupid crashes you've ever seen. Like he'll just be riding in a straight line in a parking lot and trip over a pebble and land on his face. Like there's, there's a fun story actually, like his first ever downhill world cup in South Africa and he's warming up. Like I was, I can't remember where he qualified, but I was just getting to the top for my final run when he was about to take off for his. So, um, and all of a sudden I get to the top and Sean Hughes mechanic is just, He's flustered. He's running around. And I'm like, what, what's the matter, Sean? He's like, what's going on? He's like, Richie just had a crash and he's ripped his grip off. Like he literally just like shredded his grip. Just warming <laughs> up in the gravel, you know, like he does the most ridiculously skill right before, before his race, his race run. So, and it didn't bother him one bit, you know, like that's another like strength of Richie's like junior world champs in 2012 and Lee gang. And he basically, there's a red flag out on the very last turn. But Richie just kept going to the line. It was on the last corner. But because the red flag was out, he had to go up for a rerun. So he, he goes down, does his run, gets second, and then has to do a rerun. And, like, most people would be super pissed because, you know, they've just laid down a, a run good enough for a medal at World Champs in their first year junior. And he's like, eh, whatever. Like, he just went, didn't say a word, just, like, got on his bike, jumped on the gondola. He got, like, a two-minute warm-up in at the top and then just went off again and did basically the exact same time. And like just the mental strength that that would take, like the pressure of a world champs race run at your first ever world champs. Like that was another sort of Richie moment that I was just like, damn, this kid's got, he's got the package, you know? Yeah. He doesn't seem to let much phase him. And you've just kind of confirmed that Graves. I just want to say a huge congrats on an incredible career. It has its ups, its downs. It's shit to deal with. Um, I, I just am proud to have, Uh, grown up racing alongside you and you definitely pushed me and I think pushed so many riders and still helped them so thanks so much for that and I don't know if you want to leave the listener with any nuggets 
or, or anything before we sort of uh, wind down and say cheers? I think we've covered a pretty uh, pretty good range of things there. and It's past my dinner time, so I'm very hungry. <laughs> Got some more pizzas to eat. Yeah, so uh, absolutely. Let's let Graves get to a pizza coma. Guys, thanks so much for listening. I think if it's positive... Why don't you shout out to Graves? He had an incredible career and he's going to be in the industry. Thank goodness staying staying around, helping guys. If you've got any feedback for me, constructive, I'll take. If you're going to shit talk me, maybe <laughs> don't send it to me. But this was Moving the Needle podcast. I was Andrew Nieting. That was Jared Graves. Thanks so much to him. If you've got any questions for, for me or to answer or maybe for Jared, I can always text him or something. Maybe he'll give you an answer if we miss something. So thanks so much, guys. You know what to do. Leave a review uh, or share it with a friend. Thanks so much, guys, and stay well.